Welcome to the Film Seekers Podcast. Mainstream, art house, vintage and documentaries. We bring news and reviews of big screen productions to your earbuds. We seek films. Now relax and enjoy the show. show. Einstein, genius, dyslexic. He was too clever for words. Yes, he was too clever, too clever for words. Hello and welcome to our ninth episode. We'll be tapping our feet today and pirouetting with Powell and Pressburger's influential classic, The Red Shoes, running down the UK box office top ten, and of course dropping in on our competition and covering the latest industry and film news. This is the Film Seekers Podcast. So welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome all. Uh, it's me, Neil Ramji, behind the controls today. I'm joined by Michael Ross. Hello. How are you doing, Mike? I'm all good, yeah. Yeah, um, ready for another episode of the Film Seekers podcast? Most assuredly, yes. And uh, big shout out to, we've been looking through the an- analysis of our previous podcast, big shout out to Kurt Craig in Belgium, I think. was <laughs> Where was we up. have an unusually <laughs> large uh, listenership, so who'd have guessed? Thank you very much, Belgium, for uh, tuning in. There are other parts of the world we're yet to tap into, I think Africa and... South America. America yeah. yeah, so we may get there today with one of the films that we may mention in passing that's playing at Glasgow, but that's all to come today. We're obviously going to be picking up with the news first and foremost, going on to the festival and award seasons, taking a couple of breaks, looking at the UK box office top ten, as I've said, and the main feature film, which is Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes from 1948. Uh, we'll also have our recommendations for stuff on streaming that you can watch at home and explore and seek out those films. And just to recap, the Film Seekers Remit is here to help you go into those places that you may have found a bit difficult in the past. People may have stood in your way as gatekeepers. I think that's the term people use nowadays. Yeah. It can sometimes be a little bit daunting to venture into areas you're unaware of or especially with something like film or or any sort of specialised subject can feel like you sort of you need a lot of knowledge sort of beforehand to get into those areas where we will try and sort of bridge that gap for you and give you some of that knowledge so that you can feel confident enough to go out and seek films that you might not have otherwise. And no one likes to feel stupid when someone's trying to explain something to you. Of course you didn't know about so-and-so's greatest work. And Oh, you don't know about Dutch tilts? What's wrong with you? You know, <laughs> things like that. That it, It's only through sort of a little bit of, of effort on your part or effort on our part if we can to sort of help you get there yeah and that's the remit behind the film seekers podcast one of the other things we do is not swear Hmm. or don't do uh we do not swear on our podcast and that's one of the things that i I wear with a badge of pride seeing as uh i have a potty mouth and so do you michael (laughs) yeah mouth like a sailor over here (laughs) (laughs) one of our unique selling points is the fact that uh, you can listen to this with whoever's in the room hopefully unless we're covering a a dangerous subject in which case we would give you the heads up beforehand so on with our news for today it's always exciting when we go into the news because in the past we've always talked about 
female-centric sort of uh, news that's come up, obviously with the Weinstein case. Yeah, the Me Too movement. It's, it's quite a big thing at the moment. And um, the, the sexual allegations that are going on in the film industry, it's a big thing. Um, it's kind of kicked off around about the start of the Film Seekers podcast. And because it's come up in the news so much, it's something that we're obviously committed to talking about, as I think it's interesting to have that dialogue about sexual abuse and, and the misrepresentation of marginalised groups and I wouldn't even say that women are marginalised groups and not it's just the fact that they are completely misrepresented yeah. in an industry where they should be equals and um, obviously the, the this has been going on since day dot for the film industry but recently that's been kicked up again obviously through the Weinstein incident where his influence over actresses and people within the industry um has had wider ramifications yeah and um this week our first point of call is with uma thurman who was quite vocal after the weinstein stuff had exploded and said that she was too angry at the time to talk about it yeah and now has the time has come for her to explain what she was angry about and what do you know about this story mike uh, well, yes, um, she was angry about uh, an assault uh, perpetrated on her by Harvey Weinstein. Harvey had cornered her in the Savoy Hotel, I in think. In London, yeah. In London, and we don't need to go into all the salacious details. I know it's not what we're here for. But he had obviously been working quite closely with her because uh, Harvey Weinstein, as a producer, had bankrolls a lot of uh, Quentin Tarantino films, and some of which Uma has been in, including yes. Death Proof, and I think most famously... Kill Bill. Yeah, Kill Bill and obviously Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, which is where she made a name, I think. To a degree, yes, definitely. I can't really think of anything before Pulp Fiction. No, I don't think it was her debut, but it's definitely what sort of garnered her some some acclaim and and got her name out there. And Uma's quite seen as a a strong representation of women. And I read an interesting article this week sent to me uh, about uh, the use of the term strong female character. And I think that's damning in itself, really. But she is a strong representation of women on screen. If you look at someone uh, like the bride and the character she plays in the Kill Bill series who goes through so much. Uh, yeah. But this is all, it, it's really weird because this is all lensed through a man's um, view. Yeah, a male gaze. Um, it Also, there are elements of exploitation within the character where she is quite um, abused and degraded at points. So is that sort of feeding into the sort of the idea that, that people just want to see that? of women but at the same time she has her own agency later on so it sort of it combats that and it's it's yeah it's a quite a quite a tricky one it's been a while since i've seen the kill bill films and it's probably something that i would like to re go back and revisit at some point maybe not immediately I always enjoyed them for what they were at the time. I think I was probably quite naive as to the wider things that were yeah. going on um, during, I think it was the early 2000s, wasn't it? Yeah, in the turn say, of the century, yeah. uh, where it was split into part one and part two. And the story is uh, about a woman who is horrifically treated and yeah. she becomes a, a prodigal figure and uh, seeks revenge over a certain amount of characters within the film. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, to, to quote the film itself, an avenging angel on a rip-roaring rampage of revenge, you know, <laughs> that sort of, it, 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 it's quite exciting and and she, she definitely kicks some butt in that film, you know, there is no arguing that. No, not, not, not at all. So, 
the, the stuff's come out. Uma's done a interview with the New York Times, yeah. I think it was, and it, it was uh, written up by uh, a journalist whose name is uh, escaping. Maureen Dowd is yeah. her name. It's called "This Is Why Uma Thurman Is Angry." Talks about how she's been assaulted by various people, but then a allegation came up during this, which no one had heard about before. But I'm assuming that people knew about within you know the industry and within the production was that uma had uh been asked to commandeer a, a vehicle which she wasn't keen on yeah she she didn't feel confident in the driving of it uh, i believe also someone involved in the production had told her that the car wasn't great it wasn't that safe or as safe as it should be certainly um and she was coerced um into doing the stunt herself the scene herself where often they you know you don't actually drive you you sort of you have someone you have a stunt driver doing the actual driving and then you have you know the car being pulled or Mm -hmm. or or whatever to get you that sort of look of the actual actor in situ yeah and as she wasn't very keen on doing this she was coerced into doing it by the director quentin tarantino the car went through its motions and ended up crashing into a tree yeah. of which she sustained concussion and some damage to her legs of which is yeah. still felt today yeah yeah um so in terms of what she was asked she was very upset about this because it put back filming and yeah. it also like i said had an impact on her her life you know she is she is sort of as as can happen with um serious sort of damage muscle pain things like that it's something that can then go on to haunt you for the rest of your life you know yeah and, and she's still very angry about it by all accounts understandably so and and what it turns out is that she feels that perhaps this the, the reason she was coerced into doing it was at the behest of harvey weinstein who was part of the miramax group who was yeah. producing this film and because um, she had rejected Harvey Weinstein's advances in the past, uh, she felt that Harvey had said to Tarantino, make her do this shot, not necessarily hurt herself, but just scare her a, yeah. a bit. It's again, it's it's exerting that influence, that power over women, which seemed to be a large part of, of what he did. You know, it, it wasn't just sexual assaults, even though obviously those did occur. It was also that sort of exerting power of sort of abusing that power that he knew he had yeah and um eventually you know he he got what he wanted which was to damage her in some way i don't know if he fully intended to damage her physically no but certainly you know it had an effect on her tarantino is inferred as being implicit in this whole affair now there there are other things that transpire that happened on the set of Kill Bill. Mike, do you know about this? Uh, yes, this is um, Tarantino being the one who strangled her and who also, uh, there is a scene where she is spat on and he is the person that spat on her. Yeah, because he couldn't trust the person to spit on her <laughs> Yeah, he, he wanted to um, art direct the spit is, is how I've seen him him sort of talk about it which yeah it's flimsy as anything really isn't it so this is not new in terms of directors wanting to interject themselves into the artistic process and whatever you may think about the artistic process and it's it's been going on since the the beginning of time we talk about alfred hitchcock and the way he directed some of his films and the relationships that he had with some of his stars so you want to kind of 
think about maybe I don't know um, Ingrid Bergman and Alfred Hitchcock and and he had some sort of foot fetish as well I believe Hitchcock did as well yeah um, Tippi Hedren's come out and uh, I believe she has said that she didn't have a very good relationship with Hitchcock in fact he forced himself or tried to force himself on her several times which was par for the course in those days sadly um you know and, that's... and until recently apparently yeah um it, you know the, the hollywood bubble seems to live in its own little hollywood world doesn't <laughs> yeah. it really and which as an outsider we can stand back and be aghast at the whole affair but really those those people don't live in reality as far as work. no although it must be said that it's not a problem exclusive to hollywood oh, of course not no no and this is the good thing is that while people look to hollywood to certain things and you look at film um to get your morals maybe or, yeah. or, or to understand the world a little bit better you know i can watch a film about a young boy in brazil and, and maybe have a bit of a better understanding of how someone lives in those circumstances people look to the big screen to the big stars to see how one should carry themselves out and there's obviously moralistic and you know other values in there and I guess that the way that this is all blown up, we are now seeing, well, actually, these people have said no, and this is not acceptable. Yeah. And, you know, this is something that has happened to me, and I have also feel strongly about it, but it has been widely accepted. Yeah, before. yeah. So it's, it's, it's... The artistic process part is probably the most awful thing about this in terms of Tarantino still trying to imitate what Hitchcock was doing by putting pressure on the actresses, spitting in someone's face. I mean, as part of an actor, if you were Michael, I think it was Michael Madsen. Michael Madsen, Madsen yeah. yeah and, and so he's doing it as a character. That that you can, it's, it's the same as, say, filming a sex scene. You might not be romantically attracted to this person, but you are playing a character who is. So that's sort of where that comes in. And, and so likewise, with something like spitting in someone's face, I can see it being a lot less degrading if it is if, if it's a part of the scene more organically if if you sort of understand kind what I mean. Of, yeah. So so if you were the actor in the scene and you were spitting at someone, is that what you're trying yeah, to say? Yeah, I, I, rather than a director, or, or rather if I was the actor being spat on, yeah. I think I could understand it more, or it, it wouldn't affect me in the same way if it was by my co-star. If it's it's more organically a part of the scene, if you get what I mean. So, like, yeah, I, I did some course. acting when I was younger, okay. and we were there was talk of a stage slap. I told them to slap me for real, because it's not any lasting damage, anything like that, but it lends itself to the performance. Mm-hmm. You know, the performance, it's that method acting. It's you You want real, you want, you want sort of reality, you want it to be as real as you can get it to be. And, and so within the scene, within the sort of the characters... I can understand that a bit better rather than just you're there as the actor and the director is spitting in your face. Yeah, and it almost seems like uh, Tarantino has some ideas of grandeur about himself, but it, it seems like quite conniving and calculated the the way that he's put himself into this because he wanted to degrade yeah. Uma Thurman yeah, for yeah, real. Yeah. She was obviously under a lot of duress and coercion at the time and being convinced to do things that she didn't she want. She wasn't comfortable to, with, with, clearly, yeah. yeah. And obviously the the pressure from the producing side of things with Harvey Weinstein. So this is all a very horrible sequence of events, and it's it's not too far away, really. I mean, eighteen years is a long time. I mean, time. it's it's a while, but at the same time, it's it's you know within our lifetime Lifetimes, sort of thing. Yeah. Where obviously Hitchcock, yeah. that that seems a lot more like a bygone age. Sure. Whereas this this sort of is the modern industry almost. Yeah. Two thousand three, two thousand four, Kill Bill one and two. So yeah, fifteen years ago. So uh, he was aware that Uma. Was 
was going to New York, the New York Times with this whole yeah. sequence, and they had planned this together so he was ready with a response to anything that came up in the article because obviously they have a long working relationship Relationship. and uma hasn't actually gone back and worked with tarantino since the kill bill films um there is some inference to the whole car crash scene in his subsequent film so death proof the 2007 film yeah uh there's a sequence where women are crashed into many many sequences in in that film you know where yeah there are violent car crashes involving young women and uh, that may seem like a bit of a thumb in the eye to the whole Um, sequence of events especially uh one of whom is uh, zoe bell who was uma's stunt double for kill bill and you know another name in the Me, me too movement also stars in Death Proof, um, ironically or otherwise, Rose McGowan, yeah. of course, who is in the uh, Planet Terror, which is the double A side, I guess, to that, yeah. that film. And, and features briefly, I believe, in, in, in Death, Death Proof. Proof. Yeah. yeah, It's kind of undone a little bit of my admiration for Tarantino. I think he's a cutting-edge filmmaker. I love the films that he's done. I did love, yeah. like I said, I loved Kill Bill. I love. I still think I, I, I really liked um, Pulp Fiction. True Romance is a fantastic film that he didn't direct but he but had he wrote. A, he wrote and there's clearly a lot of influence yes. under the under um, the hood on that one but i i, I enjoyed django uh, as as you say enjoyed but <laughs> i kind of i i, I you, you can admire the sort of the technical prowess yeah, I, and I, yeah and and the scope of it to jackie brown as well it's a, a classic that very rarely gets spoken of as well but pam he reinvented pam greer's career and as much as pam greer could probably do that of her own agency yeah. he gave her the platform to do that jackie brown as a character that he wrote with her in mind was brilliant and she she brought that to life well yeah he was he was known for resurrecting careers obviously he did it with john travolta in pulp fiction and and completely changed the way people looked at him and so this was this was something he was known for and he's also you know people like bruce dern as well sort of bringing them back to the fore as well yeah. although bruce dern was in nebraska a few years ago but that was quite a mild in a film uh, also jennifer jason lee from Jen- the hateful eight um, yeah. not that she hadn't been working but it was a, a higher profile gig say than she had done recently he does work incredibly i'm i guess we're, we're sounding like we're trying to make platitudes and excuses for his behavior personally i i think it's deplorable if yeah, he was seriously I'm- choking her with the chain in that sequence and spitting on her face if it was michael madsen doing it and he was instructed to do that as part of the scene i think that would be different yeah i understand giving some authenticity to a scene so getting like you talked about the slap earlier yeah if that person was comfortable with it yes that is that is obviously a the, key part of it well consent is exactly <laughs> so, you know, it comes back to that word it shouldn't need to be sort of stressed so much if they that person consented to, to that's being filmed organically then i guess there wouldn't be an issue there mm. but this seems like uma was baracked into doing it yeah there's no other sort of term to, yeah, to yeah. say that i'm sure this will unfold a bit more over the course of the next few weeks uh but mr tarantino has gone down in my estimation quite considerably Mine too i don't think it will stop me in enjoying his work because it has been a long time since i've watched his films and i would be interested to see some of his other films um, I did talk about revisiting Kill Bill 
one and two. It won't be for a while for mm. me on the back of yeah, this. Yeah, need a bit of distance. And I think I will forever now have the image of what was going on off screen in yeah. my head during those particular scenes. And uh, that will obviously take away from the, 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 the sheen that was on there. For, well, nothing. yeah, the, the, the scene in which she crashes is obviously, it's the iconic opening of the second film that, you know, I, I can picture that scene, but yet learning this really sort of taints that image for me. Who knows what else? Else hasn't been revealed in the film world of iconic scenes and uh, actors and actresses being forced into doing things that they weren't comfortable with, comfortable yeah. with and, and those things will also come out in the years to come I guess but it is what you know and we know this and uh, yep. yeah knowing is half the battle it is <laughs> and sadly well for yourself Mike well this this will seriously taint yeah yeah I, I mean personally I have not been as big a fan of his recent works. Um, not that that should matter no. in, in this, but it, it definitely does taint my view of him Okay, um, for the worse, clearly. Sorry, yeah. I, I shouldn't need to state that, but I feel like I, I, I do need to, yeah. I, I view him, he, he has gone down, like you say, he has gone down in my estimation because yeah. of this. Yeah, and I think it's no uh, surprise that Tarantino is a very difficult person to work with. He's very passionate when you hear him talk about his films. There's also the, the horrible stuff that's come out uh, the audio clip when he was on Howard Stern's show where he defending Roman Polanski and Um, some of the comments he came out with were absolutely disgusting yeah and you like the you there is maybe a small element of he's on howard stern who was known as a shock jock but when howard stern is having to be the voice of reason in a conversation you're having you are off the reservation there's just no other thing to it and the things he was saying were whether reprehensible I, yeah i don't i haven't heard the audio tape i've seen the transcripts but i don't know what the tone was whoever he was deliberately provoking Howard Stern, but even still... It's hard to tell. To be honest with you, for me, that went way over the top of even if he was trying to be sarcastic, perhaps, or funnier about the whole thing, not that paedophilia is a a, a thing to make a joke of, Um, uh, especially on a a radio show that's going to tarnish your public image. But the stuff he was saying was absolutely disgusting. Um, So, yeah, Uma Thurman would be nice to see her in some stuff in terms of of film. I think the last time I saw her was in Nymphomaniac in a great role, uh, Lars von Trier's last film, but I haven't seen her. No, she she else. definitely hasn't done as much work recently. No, probably um, doing much more important things. I, well, um, I, I believe she's a mother, so that definitely qualifies. There also, if she is suffering, you know, yeah. from these injuries still, of course. you can completely understand, you know, a, a, a sort of lighter schedule or less work. Lars von Trier, it was an interesting choice to go to after all of this, though, because he is also known to push his actors and actresses yeah. quite hard in a, in a similar vein to quentin tarantino that's the first part of the news done for today so the second thing we were going to talk about cloverfield cloverfield three in particular or the cloverfield paradox as it's known with terrible title awful title it was originally known as the god particle they changed that title to the paradox for some reason and this is the obviously third film in the cloverfield franchise and this is obviously the third film in the cloverfield franchise following on from 10 Cloverfield Lane, which was the last one with John Goodman and Catherine Waterston. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Why do I get those two confused <laughs> all the time? Uh, the first 
Cloverfield film, which was known for being sort of a bit verite, with slight documentary style. Yeah, it was around the sort of boom of uh, found footage, very it, cleverly marketed it film. It was very it's, cleverly. It's partly what it is known for. Well, the whole marketing behind the Cloverfield franchise seems to be, we're not going to tell you what this film is about, we're not even going to tell you what this when this film's going to come out. And that certainly was the case around 10 Cloverfield Lane, which was titled something else. Yeah, it was, a, I believe, another a sort of a different project that sort of late on got got sort of absorbed into the Cloverfield franchise. It wasn't originally intended to be, I don't think. So the Cloverfield series is a series of films where uh, the world is invaded by alien forces. Uh, yeah, some kind of giant kaiju-like alien thing. That the the initial film is is a bunch of people in New York. Is as, that New Year's Eve or something? I, I believe so. Yeah. yeah, they're at a party, and so yeah. they're filming because of that. And then all hell breaks loose, and they continue filming as they try to survive this sort of uh, horrific event. Yeah, the second film doesn't follow on from that at all. In fact, it, as you said, could be considered to be a, a different. Film film altogether you know not part of the overarching franchise where there are two people in a bunker in yeah. tight confines and or three people in a bunker three people in a bunker and they are in these tight spaces trying to get along yeah it's it, it's quite a good little sort of three-hander there's 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 some mystery to, to start where you don't quite know who you can trust whether a certain character is a good person or a bad person what they are doing why they are doing it that is slowly revealed as the film goes on and then there is a late on shift twist that ties it in to the Cloverfield universe yeah and it, some people felt that was a little bit tacked on just yeah, to pull it I in. was not a fan oh okay I quite enjoyed the film itself um, for me it was a really tense thriller I guess uh, it, I thought it had claustroph- elements of claustrophobic that. yeah it had elements of that but it was for me at least and, and admittedly I, I knew some of the backstory behind the production going in and so that can't help but taint your viewing experience but for me it felt like they had watered it down okay. to get that 12a rating and link it into the Cloverfield franchise that I really enjoyed the film up until that stuff started happening and so I would have preferred to see that excised i would have preferred to see what i assume was the original idea right uh, i thought it was quite strong personally for uh, 12a i'm very surprised it actually got past at 12a the certain graphic stabbing scenes uh, with some visual injury as well there's stuff over the face uh, yeah yeah there is a, a i believe it's acid, acid involved yeah, it's in, in sort of facial scarring quite, and quite horrific i saw it on a big screen and uh, and uh, the monster elements towards the end of the film to tie it into the universe quite scary actually i found them in places um, it, it worked for me in that respect and I can understand why it didn't work for you as well so this is the third film it was announced on late on just before Super Bowl it was uh, during the halftime show the halftime mm-hmm. uh, where obviously there's the the sort of a lot of film trailers will drop at that point it's it's big sort of you you know you have to spend quite a bit to get those spots but you are reaching a massive audience and so yeah it was pretty much unheard of before this and then the trailer dropped during the Super Bowl halftime with the sort of announcement that it would be going up live after the Super Bowl. So you, as soon as you'd finished watching your football, uh, American football, let's clarify that, <laughs> you could then go and, and watch this if you subscribe to Netflix. Yeah, and uh, it went worldwide. So this film was announced and in the space of roughly about 60 minutes to 90 minutes, it was available to watch. Yeah, which is highly unusual. Very unusual. I mean, you wouldn't get that anywhere else, I guess. In the modern age, you can just 
instantly have something there and then. You're not waiting for a trailer to drop and then waiting eight months for a, or even longer, a yeah. year for a film to come yeah. out. There's... Watching the five different trailers that will drop for a Marvel film or, or these big budget blockbusters, it was a much more immediate and, and sort of involving process. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a unique releasing strategy that's not been used anywhere else before perhaps to its own detriment from the initial reviews very very mixed it didn't work for me it was a bit of a mess of a film if i'm honest with you but the hype worked for me yeah it made you watch it it made me watch it yeah and i guess this possibly could be a releasing strategy you know where you have this short-term hype the hype is there you're very excited this film that everyone's waiting for to come out in as well or maybe not even that bothered about but know about the cloverfield yeah. franchise oh well it's out straight afterwards and we need to watch it and yeah, i've just it's, it's you know, creating this buzz about yeah, it a short-term buzz uh with some short-term benefits as well because loads i'm sure netflix don't release their statistics no. they're quite secretive about that sort of thing i'm sure quite a significant amount of people went and watched that at, at least off of the amount of people we've seen uh talking about it online mm-hmm. you know that the, clearly people have gone and watched this yeah uh, a lot of money was put into this film quite clearly from what i've seen of it i guess that this was the studio perhaps cutting their losses you know going we're not going to retain our money if we release this into the well, cinemas yeah. um i i heard again not sure i'm i'm no industry insider so i'm not sure how accurate this is mm-hmm. but apparently it was made for around 45 million and netflix purchased it for around 50 so instantly there's a bit of profit there that might not have happened if it had followed the traditional releasing schedule of course and who knows whether or not that will then go on subsequent uh, dvd blu-ray release more more revenue there but they didn't have to do anything for the advertising for this film either. There's no marketing campaign, so save money. Yeah. How much money did they, you know, it's almost sometimes, I believe it's like half to a third of, of the, the budget. budget goes on marketing and promotion. This has all been done for them because it's all in-house. Netflix have paid for the adverts and done everything to, yeah. to get people on board with this. It's In some ways, I quite admire it. It's quite canny. Oh, definitely. But I do think it's a one-trick pony. I think, obviously, if they keep doing this all the time, people are going to, it's going to wear very thin yeah it's the law of diminishing returns absolutely you know you can't pull this kind of trick regularly no i'm sure netflix will do it with some other titles coming down further throughout the year and especially where studios think that they're going to make a loss if they do a big release strategy and put it into cinemas just to claw back like you said that five million may not be much but it's it's something that's profit it might not have otherwise had you know better than a loss Mm -hmm, indeed Uh, does it diminish the value of a film if it's released straight onto a streaming service for you. Do you miss the fact that you can't go and watch it on a big screen? No, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, the the one I can think of from last year, mm-hmm. uh, which was close to featuring on my best of, but just missed a spot, was Okja, which was a largely a Netflix-only release. I, I believe it maybe had a, a limited it did, yeah. cinema run in, in London. But for most of the country, the only way you were able to see that film was through Netflix. And I, I love that. I, it's where getting to cinema, especially for me at the moment, can be a bit tricky. Just sitting down in front of my TV is, is far easier. Mm-hmm. I, and I already subscribe to Netflix, so I've already paid the sort of the price of admission for films like that. But don't, don't you miss the, the big screen, the big the big sound system? Would you, I, would you, would you, I love cinema, right. yet I seem to be in a small minority that I love watching stuff at home as well. It, it's okay. not a, a detriment to me. I am just as easily absorbed and lost in my room as I am in a cinema. 
I don't look at my phone. I, I, I am fully drawn into the film. I have quite a large TV in my bedroom, I'll be honest as well, um, where I'm a lot closer. So it, I, I don't feel like it makes that much of a difference for me personally, at least. Okay. Uh, obviously people are uh, there are people that don't have the benefits of such a big tv and you know people some people can get distracted quite easily as well there's there's also obviously people like uh, christopher nolan who is that sort of stout defender of cinema and and a firm believer in that it's a more communal experience things like that which i do understand and and again i love cinema i love going to the cinema and seeing films Mm -hmm. but i don't see home watches as necessarily lesser I, but, but that's my personal yeah opinion. i mean like i would come out of that saying i prefer watching a film on, on a big screen in the cinema there's something around a little bit of nostalgia for me there there is the whole event of having a night out going to the pictures yeah i'm not into the refreshments i'm not into the patrons necessarily <laughs> i don't i'm not interested in a communal experience i'm, I'm really not i don't care whether I'm, I'm not bothered whether people laugh cry yeah or clap at the end of the film i especially if they talk as well i'm i'm just i'd rather it was just me and a big screen or just a <laughs> silent audience yeah that's preferable code compliant code compliant audience. <laughs> but for me i i don't have the benefit of a of a loud sound system at home or not something readily available for yeah. me i don't have blacked out screen in front of me i wish that um i kind of had home projector yeah or... all of that sort of thing going on i would have liked to have seen not necessarily cloverfield because I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to watch that at home yeah if i'm honest with you but seeing the last cloverfield film if it was on a smaller screen i don't think i would have been as impressed by it yeah. i think i was much more immersed in the whole large monsters climbing around and uh that sort of thing i think i spoke to someone online earlier this week about what their take on on this was and they were like well i can watch a small intimate film about people's relationships quite easily off a big screen onto yeah. a, onto my home viewing i don't need to watch say for example a quiet passion which is a film about two women and one one of whom's a poet uh, set in the 18th century i don't need to see that on the big screen i can understand that what i need to see on the big screen is blade runner 2049 for example dunkirk which i, I can understand well that he argument. actually went so far as to say the avengers films and the marvel films where there's lots of action in the frame and you know the small screen doesn't really do that any service you know yeah. where you've got loud explosions and stuff the sound system can emphasize those sounds and make you feel much more immersed i don't need that for a film where there's two people having a dialogue no i i can understand that but again i it's i can only speak to my personal view and experience i own every single marvel film on Blu-ray and have watched most of them at home and still thoroughly enjoy my rewatches and still thoroughly enjoy the, the sort of the viewing experience that I get at home. I, I Again, I recognise that I am in a minority with this, but for me, it, it really doesn't have a detrimental effect. Fair enough. And does it, it doesn't devalue that for you at all? No, as as long as the film is is good as or that I, I enjoy it, I am drawn into this world. Mm-hmm. That That's all I look for. And whether it's a 60-foot screen or my 45-inch or whatever, it, I don't even know what it is, I'll be honest. Right. But my, my whatever-inch screen it is, a, a TV screen, I still get fully drawn into and lost in these films, you know. I still can remember watching Old Boy. I didn't see that in a cinema. I saw it at home on, on, on my TV. This is I had an even smaller TV at that point, yet I moved from one end of my bed to the other. I went from sitting up to gazing about 
maybe a foot from the screen. Um, and that is one of my favourite viewing experiences. It, it's a film that had a transformative effect on me as a film fan, yet it came from a solo experience at home. Okay. You know, I, it, I, I recognise, and, and I, again, I, I love cinema. I'm not, I don't mean to sort of overstate or underplay it. I am a big firm believer in going to the cinema, but I still get as much out of a home viewing as I do a cinema trip. It's interesting, but I think um, maybe next week or or in coming weeks that we'll talk about the gulf that's sort of developing between the cinema experience and the home experience where technology is so advanced now you can get a better setup in your own living room <laughs> yeah. than in most cinemas nowadays uh, because cinemas are not investing but that's yeah or they don't have the the people with the technical know-how anymore because yeah. they've all been let go yeah exactly something you may know about my <laughs> could uh, you detect a note of bitterness in my voice there there we are that was the, the cloverfield three releasing strategy lots to talk about there in terms of going forward and maybe we will see a few more drop onto netflix that uh studios may feel might be unsuccessful if yeah. they got a cinema release if you have any thoughts why not get in contact with us uh, hello at filmseekers.com or you can tweet us at filmseekers or maybe just drop us a message on our instagram and there's a facebook page as well facebook forward slash film seekers you know send smoke signals yeah. um, you know beat beat out a rhythm in morse code however however you like to communicate with others brick through the window with a note attached <laughs> why not the old classic <laughs> that is a classic um but yeah get in contact with us tell us what you think about uh, the cloverfield releasing strategy maybe you have some thoughts that we haven't covered on that and even the tarantino uma thurman weinstein mess yeah. that's going on yeah we're always looking to uh, hear other people's opinions yeah i'd love to include you on the podcast as well so yeah drop us a line and uh, we can talk about that that's the news for today mike and uh, on to our festivals section yeah well, no awards to talk about today but there's a couple of big festivals that we just wanted to sort of briefly mention the berlin film festival which goes on from the 15th of february to the 25th so uh a sort of 10 dayer and it's got an interesting jury on there it's the 68th festival do you want to tell us who's on the jury then mike uh yeah so uh then we have uh tom teichwer i apologize to any german speaking or german listeners he is the jury president and so you would most likely know him as the director of run lola run which is an amazing film or um he was co-director with the wachowski siblings on cloud atlas yeah uh, his last film was a Hologram for a King, which is based on a novel featuring Tom Hanks, among other people, uh, which I quite like, but no one else seemed to <laughs> like uh, or bother with. Uh, anyone else? Uh, so there's also Cécile de France, who is a Belgian actress, mm-hmm. um, who personally, I know her from uh, Switchblade Romance, mm-hmm. the yes. French brutal horror film um, in which she plays the lead. Yep, uh, I know her from the Dardenne's film, which is uh, The Boy with the Bike, uh, which is a very touching film. And uh, she's she's done loads of stuff. She's in the currently in Parallel Sorrentino's uh, TV series, The Young Pope, with Jude Law as well. Yeah. So Cecile's done a lot of work, and you would have seen her at least somewhere. Yeah. Even if you don't watch foreign films, um, there's Kema Prado, who's a Spanish head of programming at uh, the Filmoteca Española. I love that. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, also Adele Romansky. Now Adele Romansky, do you want to tell us a little bit about her? Uh, yes. Yeah, so she is a Oscar-winning producer. She uh, was uh, the producer for Barry Jenkins' Moonlight, oh, wow. a film which we both mentioned in our best of. Um, 
or or at least I mentioned. Um, we, we, yeah, we we, we were, were both, both fans, fans of, of definitely. Yeah. Um, and then she was also a producer for David Robert Mitchell's The Myth of the American Sleepover. Okay, so that is the director of It Follows. It Follows. So, so she's quite working with some quite cool and funky people, Adele here. Um, she, I believe she's also going to be teeing up their next projects as well, aren't they? Yes, so uh, Jenkins' next film is If Beale Street Could Talk and uh, David Robert Mitchell's is The Silver Lake and she is a producer on both of those projects. Oh, no. So clearly has a good working relationship with, with both, both of, of these directors. Yeah. Um, also on the jury is Ryuchi Sakamoto. He was in a pop band in the 80s called the Yellow Magic Orchestra which crossed over into Western uh, audiences. Uh, it's quite known for that. But he is most well known as of late in the film world for producing scores for films well, including Pedro Almodovar, Brian De Palma but he also did the soundtrack to The Revenant which yeah. uh, kind of surprised me because um, I wouldn't have thought uh, a native Japanese man would have produced something so Western and I mean Western in the terms of the genre here yeah. inflected soundtrack for that film because it had, it had a beautiful score running through the background yeah, from what I rec- recall of it and it, it really really worked for it so Ryuchi is on the Berlin Film Festival's Jury, along with Stephanie Zakarek, who is the film critic for Time magazine. Yes. Yeah, so you may have read some of her work. So quite a varied uh, jury there. Yeah, Uh, quite running, sort of runs the gamut of the industry. Quite a lot of films on the old uh, slate there, Mike. Uh, We've had a quick look through it. Now, Berlin is sort of at the beginning of the film festival circuit. So, yeah, some of these are the films that will be starting to garner festival and and sort of uh, awards sort of praise as as the year progresses they will go on to play the other festivals where they will hopefully continue that buzz but but berlin is often where it starts yeah it's a it's the genesis of the year it's almost like february is the the beginning of because everything that's got awards or got the buzz like you said is already heading towards the oscars or has already been uh, recognised for those through the SAG Awards and all the rest of it. Some of these are wild cards, really, and some of these are names that we possibly won't get familiar with until later on in the year. Yeah, They're all vying for the Golden Bear, I believe. is Golden and Silver Bears, yes. Yeah. They are the two main prizes at the Berlin Festival, yeah. Uh, I know that one person is certainly getting a Golden Bear, and that is William Defoe. Oh. who is getting a Lifetime Achievement Award. Awesome. So he is... Deservedly already, so. Absolutely. Looking at the competition films, there are so many on here, but a couple that we actually recognise at the moment. <laughs> uh, is there anything that you wanted to flag up, Mike? I've got Lav Diaz's latest film. So Lav Diaz is a Filipino film director. He is known for making extremely long films, and we're talking four hours plus here. So, uh, his latest film is apparently sub three hours, which is an achievement for him. <laughs> so, That's a brisk romp for him. And I'm not even going to run up in trying to pronounce it it's filipino it's called season and the devil in english so um, there we are yeah one that jumps out for me is um isle of dogs which is the new film from wes anderson uh, uh, which looks amazing is uh, another stop motion animated tale concerning young boy who travels to the isle of dogs where all the dogs i believe from japan have been sort of marooned almost and and so it's it's slightly lord of the flies and this young boy arrives on the island to look for his dog who was taken away from him okay playing into that childlikeness that perhaps 
came through on Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, and and uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. There, there are very uh, clear similarities between those two films, mm. if only for the sort of the stop motion animation. It is a Wes Anderson film, so it of course has an amazing cast. <laughs> and yeah, it, it's one that I am already very excited for. Yeah, no, I, I will definitely watch it. A lot of people have cited Fantastic Mr. Fox as something that it's quite similar to, obviously, because of the stop motion. I, uh, I'm i a bit of a geek in terms of film ratings, so that's my geek them, and I love analyzing why things got certain ratings in certain countries and what has been cut and cultural differences of where films are released i have seen that the mpaa which is the motion picture association of america have passed the isle of dogs films as pg-13 uh, which is quite high for for a animated film based yeah. on well not based on anything but uh, for, primarily on aimed at children which would suggest that it's got some very very challenging things in there that aren't necessarily going to be like fantastic mr fox no which is obviously much more of a children's film yeah that's an interesting one on there i i'm just trying to look through some of the other titles seven days in entebbe which is the jose padilla film with uh, daniel Bruhl and rosamund pike and that deals with a true life terrorist incident uh with um interesting consequences uh, there's obviously the new film from gus van sant which is uh, don't worry he won't get far on foot which is just a genius title like yep. if that alone doesn't make you want to see this film i don't know what's wrong with you yeah there's there's some great titles we've been actually looking at today and, and that, that is one of them and the final other one that's playing in competition uh, that i will mention is steven soderbergh's latest film unsane now yeah. you've seen the trailer for this mike yes i watched it um i had a bit of a trailer catch-up just the other day and it is uh stars claire foy oh, and from the crown from the crown and and she's starting to make a name for herself in, in other projects um i believe it is entirely filmed on an iphone oh wow um so so is it gonna be like one of these after tangerine Tangerine, which was sean baker's debut project which was entirely filmed on an iphone with an anamorphic lens specially made Mm -hmm. for that process this is this is another continuing that trend and so yeah it, it looks slightly off kilter it looks quite strange it looks like the kind of film I am going to absolutely love. I kind of really like Soderbergh's work, and I think that he goes off in different directions, everything that he brings out. I think of things like, for example, it was Contagion? Was that one Yeah, of that was. That yeah. was his, with uh, Marion Cotillard and... Uh, so many other people yeah, I'm struggling to remember very, Jude Law and Jude, uh, yeah, a Winslet, very great yeah, cast yeah. And, uh, it was about a global pandemic yeah and that was, that was just a brilliant film and you got the Oceans films which are quite slick so Oceans 11 he certainly did I don't know if he did 12 as well I'm, yeah I'm not sure but I know he definitely did 11 11 and then you got the Magic Mike films as well yeah and then he did the Girlfriend Experience with Sasha Gray yeah and, and it's just really really cool that he works with so many different stars and so many different different stories and tells them in so many different ways so i'm really looking forward to unsane he did that it's got the the title i'm not seeing the trailer the title's got the feel of the last film he did with Catherine zeta jones and i think it was jude law side effects oh okay uh rooney mara Catherine zeta jones and yeah jude law which is about uh prescription drugs and psychiatry and a very smart film very mind bendy twisty plot can't really say anymore because no, we'll spoil it we'll spoil it um but yeah he he does seem to be someone that say wes anderson mm-hmm. has a very distinctive style you can tell a wes anderson film 
Steven Soderbergh, apart from a level of class, apart from a level of skill, I wouldn't really say there is sort of the same clear stylistic ticks. He, yeah, he's he's a lot harder to pin down as a director, I think, which is admirable. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's one of the things I like about him. I also like the fact that he works with people who haven't been experienced in the film world. So you talk about people like uh, Sasha Gray uh, yeah. in The Girlfriend Experience. And also Gina Carano, who is one of these people that are coming out of athletic sports. And yeah, in this she case, was a mixed martial art fighter. Yeah, in the UFC. And she turned up as the lead in Haywire. Haywire. And, and did a great job as well, I must she say. Did. I, um, I know a lot of people put that film down, but as an action film, she was largely quiet during it and her physicality made that film yeah it very cleverly played to her strengths and i mean personally yeah i seriously enjoyed watching her it was beat the heck out of the best actors in hollywood oh, yeah of course uh, you, uh, ewan mcgregor um, michael fassbender channing tatum and uh, michael douglas yeah and she just kicks their bums Bums. each yeah. one of them um and, sh- and and is entirely believable doing so yeah it's a brilliant fun film and, yeah uh, and there's not enough of those knocking around it's slightly cleverer than you might think with the I quite like the way the plot unfolded and it, it didn't necessarily go the way I expected from what at first maybe looked like a dumb action film of course yeah I, I think at, at the times that film plays on on those sort of credentials and I'm sure that a large part of that is is Soderbergh's influence and those are just some of the exciting things going on at Berlin Film Festival this year the other film festival we want to quickly touch upon was Glasgow Film Festival now this is into its 14th year wow and uh, Glasgow Film Festival has a huge program going on. It's 330 separate events that are going to go on across the city between 21st February and the 4th of March, so a little bit longer than uh, Berlin's Film Festival. And they have loads of premieres lined up. They've got loads of special events going on. Um, Karen Gillan, who is Scottish in herself. Yeah, um, uh, obviously uh, Nebula. She was recently in the Jumanji films. Film. Yeah, and she's going to be at the world premiere of uh, her directorial debut. Yeah. Uh, the party's just beginning. So where she's got the time for this, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> Uh, Bull Pullman's going to be there for his uh, premiere of The Ballad of Lefty Brown. And Lynn Ramsey, and I love Lynn Ramsey's work, she's going to be there for her new film, You Were Never Really There. Uh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very clever. And that's the Scottish premiere. And she'll also be alongside Edith Bowman, who is a a British presenter, Scottish presenter, who will be doing her podcast soundtracking from there, analysing some of Lynn Ramsey's music in her films, which is going to be very interesting. Isle of Dogs, we've already talked about Wes Anderson's film, is going to open up the night. And then closing it... Is a film called Nay Passeran, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Which is the story of some Scottish uh, factory workers who disagreed with... Uh, the practices of a Chilean dictator, General Pinochet, and they were actually working in a factory that was making the engines that the Junta fighters were actually using to suppress the people and and sort of to carry out Pinochet's dictatorship, um, to enforce it. And and so they they took a stand and declined to do safety checks on these engines for these aeroplanes. And and they didn't realise at the time in 1974 that this would have greater ramifications on the other side of the world, basically. Yeah. In Chile, um, this had a massive effect on the war effort. Yeah. There. Um, and it's uh, one of those stories, once again, that n- never even heard of. No, until, I had like, no idea about until, this. Until we like read the synopsis. I was just like, oh, that's a bit of a turn up for the books. And yeah. it's, it's great that films like this 
get brought to screen. So um, that is Nay Passaran. Is that something in Scottish? I'm Nay is, certainly is. Nay is, is, is no, no um, yeah. but I've, I'm, I'm afraid I've never heard the term Passaran. But I am probably not the best Scot, having no. spent more time in England than I have in Scotland. <laughs> Um, it's directed by Felipe Bustos Sierra, possibly Chilean. I don't know. Uh, it sounds sounds so, Chilean, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, there's lots of cool things going on in Glasgow. Like I said, there's a huge program, and we've gone through some of the highlights. But one of the things that is really fun about Glasgow Film Festival is that they have little events, and a couple of the events that we saw on the program was school discos. Now hmm. they're having school discos at. An, at a venue called SWG3, which is kind of like a nightclub. And uh, there's big DJs there and everything else. I've seen flyers when I've been in Glasgow. Yeah, it's, it's quite a big venue. It is. And they're having school discos there, but they're also showing a film beforehand, I believe, or maybe it's a disco around the film. I'm not yeah. sure how it quite works. Clueless is one of them, which I think is brilliant if you yeah. get the right soundtrack going on in yeah. the background. A bit of, I don't know, Bon Jovi maybe? Yeah, some sort of 90s pop. and <laughs> Yeah, yeah I, I can see it. Yeah, that would really work. And uh, then Gregory's Girl as well which is a slightly older audience obviously yeah, but a, a Scottish classic yeah absolutely and uh, maybe some uh, Scottish bangers uh, I, I'm trying to think some proclaimers <laughs> <laughs> and I'm allowed to say this I'm Scottish, Scottish so I can go to the cliches yeah you can go to the cliches <laughs> brilliant um, there's also a Big Lebowski uh, screening uh, Night of Bowling so I believe it's in a bowling alley which is just amazing brilliant um, isn't it you can... nobody messes with Jesus <laughs> yeah you can be Jesus which I, I, I edited there on the fly yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was well edited. And uh, then there's also Run Lola Run uh, for the Glasgow Youth, youth Film. Yeah, which uh, we obviously mentioned earlier. Yeah, and uh, then Ben Wheatley's going to be there. And so there's there's huge amounts of stuff going on there. A couple of the big films though we want to mention, and Glasgow, where it sits in terms of the film fest, we talked about Berlin being at the beginning. I guess, unfortunately, even though Glasgow happens after Berlin, it's on a, more sort of seen as the tail end. Yeah, it sits on the end of, of the it, previous year. Of the previous year festival run. So basically, if you're going to Glasgow Film Festival, you're getting a greatest hits of the year because everyone sort of sifted out all the festival classics or festival gems of this year. And while you're not going to get your Call Me By Your Names there or your... I don't know, your moonlights or your big things that are already going to Oscars and BAFTAs, yeah. you're still getting the best of the rest of the world yeah. that no one's actually picked up on yet or haven't had releases. So we talk about films, the Agnes Varda's film Faces Places, which uh, ranks highly on the BFI's end of year list within the top 10 there. Yeah, there's also um, Submergence uh, starring Alicia Vikander and James McAvoy. Yep, and that has been in the can for a little while now. I think that's the latest film from Vim Vendors. Yes. Uh, who did Paris, Texas. And if you haven't seen Paris, Texas, go and see it. It's a brilliant <laughs> starting point to get into his work. And also the Buena Vista Social Club as yep. well. Another, another great piece of work. There is also uh, Zammer on there from Lucretia, Lucretia Martel. I'm a bit bummed out because... I'm going to be in Glasgow the week before the festival <laughs> on purpose, uh, but uh, I would have loved to have been able to see Zammer on the big screen as well. well it's, I, I believe Glasgow Film Festival is one you have attended before, correct? I have, yeah, a, a few times yeah. now, yeah. 
Um, Wonderstruck on there and 120 BPM are two films that I've caught up with. So Wonderstruck was the Todd Haynes film. Yeah. And that's from Amazon Studios. I think it's possibly going to appear on Amazon Prime at some point, uh, starring uh, Julie... And more. More, yeah. And she does a great role as uh, someone who has deafness. And 120 BPM, which a lot of people have asked why isn't... Certainly not going for the Oscar Best Picture for Foreign Language. It's a French film about AIDS activism in the 1990s. I saw this at London Film Festival. Thoroughly enjoyed it a lot more than I I thought I would going into it. It's up for a lot of uh, awards at the French equivalent of the Oscars called the Césars. Yeah. Uh, taking loads and lo- it's in loads of categories it's like the film yeah, of that festival Lord of the Rings <laughs> very much yeah. um, Journeyman's in there the Paddy Considine film which also had the chance to watch you've got in the fade uh, in the list as well of gala presentations which is up for a Oscar foreign language film starring Diane Kruger and it's directed by F- Fatty Akin, who did Edge of Heaven, which was one of his earlier works that brought him certainly to my attention. Great dystopian tale, I guess, um, told, the intertwining tale. And lately, he was at the 2013, I think, 2014 uh, festival circuit with The Cut starring Taha Rahim, which I have to say was quite a bit of a disappointment. But in the fade, a lot of people have been talking about as well. There is the surprise film. We've talked about um, You Were Never Really There, there here. <laughs> <laughs> They're here everywhere. Yeah. Um, the latest Lynn Ramsey film. And then there's also How to Talk to Girls at Parties, which is seems like it's been in the can for ages. Should have come out last year. Yeah, uh, did it sort of it was on the radar and then seemed to drop off of it, definitely. Very much so. And this stars Elf. Elle Fanning, Nicole Kidman, um, there's a couple others as well who I can't think of right now. Uh, The film from John Cameron Mitchell. Yep. Uh, based off of a short story by Neil Gaiman okay. and it, it just looks brilliant yeah and it's all set in uh, 1980s Croydon, Croydon yeah of all places <laughs> where else yeah exactly uh, really really looking forward to, to catching up with it from what I understand not great uh, initial reviews for it but um, proof's in the pudding when you eventually watch these and things. I'll watch anything with Elle Fanning in I'm afraid <laughs> there we are and do you know what I think she's a great actress she's as well a captivating presence she is a brilliant actress and I, I, I do in, uh, Neon Demon is probably another example of her work uh, i loved her voicing in the box trolls yeah i think she's great even in super 8 yeah and she's choosing more and more challenging roles yeah. she's not sticking to the, the safe stuff and it she's got such a great range around her yeah Elle fanning is is i think going to solidify herself as certainly one of the stars of, of the future definitely one to watch yeah, yeah. Um, she was great in 20th Century Women as well uh, the one with Greta Gerwig and uh, Annette Benning as well, as well. Um, but there's, the, there, as I said there's loads of stuff going on at the Glasgow Film Festival so you, can you say something in Scottish like get your backsides down there uh, no no, <laughs> you are um, a fake Scot I, I'm a terrible Scot I don't like whiskey um, I don't have the accent <laughs> I don't headbutt people I'm just I'm just rubbish I'm afraid I have never eaten a deep fried Mars bar what? and I've just offended every Scottish person that listens to this I, show I think but as a Scottish person reeling out the cliches so I apologise haggis uh, no not a fan See, it's, it's why they kicked me out that's why I'm not allowed back, mate. And <laughs> um, that's our roundup of all the festivals going on. And on that note, let's cut to a break. Hey, everyone. I'm Jason Michael. And I'm Lee Brady. And we're the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast. 
We're a podcast that looks to analyze what makes films great with a warm atmosphere and a good laugh. New releases, retrospectives, and absolute classics all reassessed and reviewed. You can find the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio. And if you're looking for a more direct approach, you can find us on Twitter. Just look for Jason Michael at Atlantic SC and Lee Brady at Big Pick Reviews. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast. Let the games begin. The UK box office top 10 countdown. It is about that time again to go through the top 10 for the week, uh, as we haven't been through it for a little while. And last no. one we didn't go through because it was our, our look best back off. over the year, previous uh, year. But we are here and uh, we have the latest figures for the uh, week ending the 8th of February. So that's the end of our week. The Thursday is the cutoff and uh, we have the figures in front of us and some very interesting ones they are too. So let's start at the top. Number 10. Phantom Freds. Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Thomas Anderson's newest film. Latest film. Uh, Vicky Creeps as well and Leslie Manville. We talk about Handers three-hander film yeah written by uh, paul thomas anderson as well we talk about paul thomas anderson's great works in the past i wasn't a fan of his last film the inherent vice you like i love inherent vice yeah, yeah i know I, a lot of people do i'm a fan of noir so it, it, it definitely fed into that yeah um uh, obviously uh, i think glasgow have been having a retrospective at the glasgow uh, film theater of his work including boogie nights yeah something. if you go that that's at least the first one i'm aware of yeah Punch Drunk Love, uh, Magnolia. A lot of people yeah. forget Magnolia. Yeah, I forget Magnolia. When it's, <laughs> and again, a great film that just... People um, make fun of Tom Cruise and obviously he's done a lot of action films and you think about things like uh, the Mission Impossible series, yeah. Top Gun, Cocktail, all of those. But he's been in quite some decent films. Yeah, Mag- yeah. Mag- Magnolia I, is definitely one of them. And he puts in a good performance in that film as well. It's not just he's in the good film, he is good in he, the good film. He's excellent. I mean, obviously it's part of the ensemble cast. Yeah, a but, large ensemble in the, in that case, but he, he is a central figure in that. And and again, like I say, I think he puts in a great performance in that film. And, and one thing to note from Phantom Thread, and I have to say... I've said this for every single film I've caught up with recently. It's really, really up there with some of the best films I've seen lately. Uh, mainly because the way it's been captured, the intricate relationships between all three characters yeah. going on, this, the screenplay uh, is compelling, and that's cliche for everyone to keep using the word compelling. It is. It keeps you on your feet throughout, and a lot of people have read that the relationships that are going on between the characters slightly abusive going okay, on there, yeah uh, but not in the way that you think so i'll leave that hanging for a, uh like like the thread itself <laughs> uh, uh, but one of the interesting uh, parts of phantom fred is also the music and we've got a little bit here quite haunting oh yeah and that's uh, johnny greenwood who is a member of radiohead has composed the entire soundtrack to the film and it doesn't go away throughout the entirety of the film. Oh, wow. It's constantly there, and you can hear that sort of phantom-like... Yeah, slightly haunting. Very, very um, haunting. There's a sort of lyrical, but also mystical sort of element to yeah. it. It's Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a lovely uh, soundtrack. I, I, I've listened to it all on... I think it's on Spotify at the moment, so just press play on that, <laughs> and you, you get everything that you need out of that. But it's, it's just a beautiful... Um, strain that's going on throughout the film obviously you know as a classical piece you know it has certain connotations yeah. attached to it but you can hear the 
shrillness of the yeah. violins there in the background is just um, it's quite, it's quite scary. Oscar nominated score. It is, isn't yeah. It? Now there was an issue last time that Johnny Greenwood did a score, wasn't there? He did... yeah, he did the score for There Will Be Blood, a previous Paul Thomas Anderson film. Uh, obviously, the film itself was Oscar nominated for a lot of things, and there was, I believe, an intention to uh, get the score nominated as well. But due to a uh, slight rule that that exists within the Oscars, mm-hmm. uh, where you are not allowed to use music, or you're not, it's not allowed to be nominated if the music has been used somewhere else. And so in the case of that, I believe it's a small, tiny section of the score from There Will Be Blood had been used in, in some sort of BBC documentary or, or something like that that disqualified it. So so there were a lot of people that saw that as a bit of an injustice. Right. And this is a sort of writing of the scales. And uh, rightly so. If you get to watch Phantom Fred, uh, you will see how important the score is as part of bringing that story to life. It's a, just a brilliant film. And it, sadly, because it's quite niche, it's there at the bottom yeah. at number 10 and, oh. and it'll probably drop out quite soon uh, but also worth noting as it's uh, potentially Daniel Day-Lewis's uh, farewell performance and what a performance it is number 9 Jumanji welcome to the jungle week 7 still there taking 35 million at the UK box office quite a lot for us mm-hmm. we, are, we are only a small island yeah. <laughs> uh, small population as well so. I don't think anyone anticipated this would do as well as it has no. done it appeared in the most money taken for, for, two, two, for the year, year of 2017 despite coming out five in days, December yeah five days before the end of the yeah. year which is just mad. So it's clearly found an audience. It has found an audience. It's still playing at 491 locations across the UK. I, I've I've got no excuse. I should have caught up with it by now. It's a family film and it does something a little bit different than perhaps a lot of family fare out there, I yeah. guess. It's, it's got that attachment with Robin Williams and the original film and people who were... Uh, young at the time you yeah, saw that film you were a kid in the 90s you may well have kids of your own now scary um so you know it, it's a film from your childhood that you're then able to sort of share to a degree with your children through through this sequel and uh yeah they certainly are doing it there at number nine number eight free billboards outside ebbing missouri uh, the one that my mum saw twice if you, want, if you want to put a thing on it they should put that on the poster they should put it on the poster the one that Mrs Ramsey saw twice <laughs> uh, it's four weeks it's doing okay for itself I think that will probably yo-yo up and down the charts now that we're getting closer to the Oscars yeah, flooding back a few more screenings now that there's a little bit of more interest of that in the news yeah as the buzz starts to sort of build and, and a lot of um, people will go and see the films that are Oscar nominated as much as they're able yeah week four um, it's doing very well for itself a very good film on from both of our accounts yeah absolutely great um great casts great performances great direction great writing go and see it number seven the post steven spielberg's latest film where steven spielberg nowadays seems to make films reflecting historic events so yeah. you know we've got lincoln there it was munich a while back munich a bridge of spies and now he's teaming up again with the lead from bridge of spies so tom hanks is in uh the posters uh, ben bradley the uh, chief editor of the washington post and the head of the washington post the owner is played by meryl streep two powerhouse performances yeah there. i mean if the two of them don't make you want to see the film i i don't quite understand because they are two of the best working at the moment and um it's uh done pretty well for itself it's in its third week it's obviously there for a slightly older audience yeah i think that's fair and uh what it's trying to achieve i guess is 
reflects some of what went on at the time. It was it's pre Watergate, but it's it's all about very the, close to Watergate. <laughs> yeah, it is very close to Watergate. <laughs> it's trying to reflect, uh, I guess, with a little bit of dramatic intent of what went on uh, between the the presidencies and all the cover ups of the war that they couldn't win. Yeah, it's it's to do. Uh, there was a large loss of faith in the sort of the the office of the president obviously with nixon and the watergate scandal and this is the start of that almost and i am very surprised that the music hasn't been nominated for any oscars whatsoever do you know who the music is by and we've got no. some of it in the background here so this no, is this is uh, the first track from the score uh, it's called the papers as you probably <laughs> expect and by john williams Oh, wow. It's almost normally an automatic inclusion. Yeah, and it's a great score as well. Um, I, I don't know why we're talking about so many of the scores today, but I, I think the the music for this film, you don't have a pop soundtrack going on. It's not I, Tonya with Cliff Richard going on in the background and all the glam stuff. Yeah. Um, it obviously is quite a serious film in terms of its content. And you can hear the score there from John Williams crescendoing. Very uh, dramatic, yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, very 70s inflected as well you've got the sort of almost exorcist sort of plinky piano yeah. stuff going on in the background there and uh, it's not been nominated for anything which you know you, I didn't I don't think anyone hardly knows that John Williams did the score no, for you, I didn't. you didn't know so uh, so that yeah that is the, the post there sitting at uh, number 7 this week number 6 Den of Thieves do you, do you know anything about this film Mike? Uh, this is the new uh, Gerard Butler film. With 50 Cent. Don't, with, ca- well, don't forget Fiddy. Wow, no. Yeah, 50 Cent. Also, um, O'Shea Jackson Jr., who was great in Straight Out of Compton. Compton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know who has directed it, I'm afraid. No, neither do I. I don't know if that's necessarily important with this kind of film. <laughs> no. It's uh, shouty action uh, corrupt cops, gangs of criminals. It's slightly sort of the the near future where the sort of the idea is that you have these gangs of of sort of criminals and then you also have the gangs of the police yeah uh, and they sort of clash and and butt heads and also swap details and do rub each other's backs and all the rest do of it. dodgy deals down dark alleys and yeah um uh, gerald butler is a beer drinking pizza guzzling uh chain smoking hard uh sort of special officer i guess I yeah he is uh, lapd sort of bad was... lieutenant-esque sort of character you can see where we're going with this it's obviously got a certain audience uh there at number six it reminds me of a complete ripoff of sabotage which was actually quite a good film with <laughs> yeah. arnold schwarzenegger and muriel enos in it and yes uh, lots and lots of other actually quite good actors. great actors yeah it? definitely uh, a great little film if you get a chance to watch it but then if he's obviously doing the business there uh number six for it on opening week number five the maze runner the death cure it's the third film and in the maze runner series i think everyone forgot about the maze runner because it's been such a long time since uh, the it's second film been quite school. a few years hasn't it yeah this one's supposed to tie everything up this is supposed to be the conclusion i don't think there will be any more after this it's a very long film i think it's knocks in around 144 minutes yeesh yeah very long <laughs> but you know if you're going to adapt a novel faithfully you want to include all the yeah. details be faithful for the fans yeah and and sort of do all the the wrapping up that is necessary with uh story arcs and characters that have spanned multiple films and the lead dylan 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 moran <laughs> but no that would be a very different film uh dylan, dylan thomas Min- 
Dylan Thomas, yes, who was, I believe, came out of the Teen Wolf remake TV <laughs> series. Yeah. Um, uh, he also did American Assassin recently as well with Michael um, Keaton. Keaton, yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, I must say, I thought the first Maze Runner was pretty damn good. Yeah, I love the first it Maze Runner. It was very solid. I really don't remember the second one at all i know i've seen it but i do not remember the it. the first one feels like a genre film and i think i may have said this to you it reminded me of cube in a way in yeah a, in a way that i can see you that get all these strangers appear in one place and then have to work together to work out the puzzles around the world and yeah there's an obvious lord of the flies yeah. sort of influence of of young men or young boys being sort of left to form a society of their own mm. and i think that that's interesting that you said that i think once you've watched the Mage Runner, you should just leave the first one alone <laughs> and not bother with yeah, the rest of them. I, I think that's fair. Uh, but it's, it's working for a young adult audience there at number five. Number four. Early Man. This is the latest from the Ardman Studios, who are known for doing Wallace and Gromit, uh, among other films. And they uh, do stop motion, claymation, yeah. animation. Uh, um, so Nick Park is known for... Yeah, he is the creator of Wallace and Gromit. He is he is a part of Ardman, but is not involved in everything they do. But but this is his latest film. And he, he did the series of adverts in the 80s in the UK called Creature Comforts, which were uh, animals funnily talking about central heating and yeah. and stuff like that. That's um, where he, he, he sort of rose to fame. And now uh, he is bringing this story of cavemen who are playing a game of football to save their valley. And we have a little clip here. We challenge the champions! Huh? What did you say? He said... We I heard what he said. If we win, we keep our valley. You leave my tribe in peace. Hmm. You think you can beat us at football? <laughs> A match between the bronze and the brutes? What an idea! Sacrilege, oh premier leader. Yes, quite. The masses would flock to see such a vulgar spectacle. Two entitled elitist boys there playing the voices of uh, the characters. Two entitled elitist characters. <laughs> um, the caveman there who was challenging uh, the Frenchman. I'm not sure why they're French <laughs> in this film. Because if you want someone to sound slightly snooty, give them a, a dodgy French, French accent. accent. Yeah, seems uh, to be the the, the 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 plucky person was Eddie Redmayne, and the other one was Tom Hiddleston. There, yeah. um, it all centres around. A caveman game of football. I I saw it a few weeks ago. Didn't work for me. It's it's not as funny as Wallace and Gromit's slapstick humor and inventiveness. There is uh, there are elements of inventiveness in this film. It plays far too young. Um, there's not much for the adults to take away unless you were uh, an adult taking your children in the 80s. <laughs> it's appealing to an audience that's no longer there. The sort yeah. of humor that would have worked in the late 70s, maybe 80s, even early 90s. That time period um, of British situational comedies and that sort of thing slightly seaside humor almost yeah i think that's a good um, way to put it so that sort of slightly bawdy slightly sort of carry on sort of vibe which it it just seems slightly outdated now. it does and, it, uh, and carry on uh, obviously doesn't go into the sexual innuendo side of no. things but um yeah that dated 70s 80s humor it really does show through on this it's awful for some reason some of the characters have french accents and not necessarily just because they're evil but it does play up that 
Francophobia. Yeah. Uh, and it feels very like post World War Two and you know yeah the great gone. escape era so, and things like so that, that I, which were fine for the time, time but like you say it just sort of seems slightly out of step now yeah very much so i mean i i think we've moved past this now we all try and get along with our friends in europe unless you're a, a <laughs> Brexiter, Brexiter. of course uh so that was early man there at uh, number four number three coco pixar film about a little boy of a guitar who goes into the afterworld to find his granddad or his, he never knew his dad or something like that I, I think it was his granddad. I've watched the film, I should know. <laughs> <laughs> it clearly had a large impact on it, you. It, it, no, I did. I really enjoyed it. And uh, one of the things I did really like about it uh, were some of the, the songs that were in it. I think I've got a little bit of a clip here. Then the world is me familiar Where this music is my language And the world is me familiar This music is my language <laughs> Oh dear, fell in the water. <laughs> um, but the music you can hear there is quite uh, traditional. Yeah, it's slightly unpolished as well, which yeah. I think is quite admirable. Yeah, it, it's the actual actors singing. Singing. Um, where they will often dub sort of, you know, yeah. established singers in, in their place. Yeah, get Ronan Keating to do a number over the top. <laughs> uh, it's really faithful to the uh, Hispanic culture. Uh, it's a beautiful way of dealing with loss as well. I yeah. think a lot of people spoke about that. Robbie Collin has done an article about animation working for dealing with loss and explaining loss to young people yeah. as well. It's a really soft way of bringing them into it. And if, if they are okay with the skeletons that appear in this film, I think they'll be okay with the idea of people passing on in a certain way. Yeah. You know, depend, depending on what you feel about these things, you're obviously not going to tell a child, well, they're gone forever and they're just going to turn <laughs> into soil. Uh, no, that's really not what happens if any children are listening today. Uh, but uh, it's a good way to break break stuff to them yeah definitely and, and, and animation has quite a long history of of broaching slightly tougher subjects in ways that are manageable for children if you think of the disney films that would often start with the death of a parent uh, yeah Bambi, it, yeah it, 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 it manages to qualify that in a way that children can more easily understand yeah it's it's three weeks in i think it's probably going to boost up a little bit over the next week seeing as we're now going into a, a midterm break and uh, it's not doing as well as it did in the States, but that's possibly because there's a larger Hispanic population yeah, there. Yeah, that makes sense. And it came out at a different time of the year, and yeah, it's come out in this bit of a empty space post-Christmas. So three weeks in, it's at number three. It's doing okay for itself. Number two. Darkest Hour, Gary Oldman playing Churchill in his uh, lead-up to declare making decisions during world war ii i don't see yeah. declaring war declaring war declaring war did he click out? i think he was dealing with war yeah war at the time. yeah they were already at war um great character study in terms of uh the things that churchill had to take part in yeah good fat suit <laughs> look convincing very polished and smoothed over in places yeah i think churchill wasn't as amicable as the film makes out film no. by joe wright who's known for doing hannah among which others. is great atonement as well yeah lots and lots of war films and <laughs> action films there's a very clunky scene in the darkest hour and i'll just leave it as london underground park it there once yeah. you see it you will know what happens but hopefully um is gonna get Gary Oldman, his long-deserved Oscar. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen him get it for something else. To yeah, be honest Tinker with you. Taylor, for example, yeah. would have been great. But it's a case of I'd rather he have one than not. 
Yeah, and uh, I was watching a video the other day about Gary Oldman talking of his favourite performances, and we've mentioned this film already today, True Romance. Hmm. He plays a pimp. Yeah, Drexler. Drexel Spivvy. The, the dreaded, dreadlocked yeah. pimp. Dreadlocked pimp who talks of a slightly um, Queen's Jamaican accent. Yeah, bizarre accent. It's, it's a very strange performance, yet... He and he's not even. I don't think he's in the film for that long. He isn't. No, but he leaves such an impression. And he's got this sort of uh, white guy uh, Jamaican patois going yeah. on, and it's it's of the time because there were a lot of uh, reggae artists that were white. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it was sort of the, around the time of. It, a, a, a fair amount of almost cultural appropriation yeah, okay. where those sort of musics hip-hop and reggae were sort of breaking to white audiences that they might not have before yeah and you see loads of white guys with with dreads uh i could try, try and think of some artists at the time uh big mountain uh they were white guys with dreads who did "Ooh, baby i love your way <laughs> and um snow informer yeah. he talks of a bit of a jamaican <laughs> accent to right. the to the extent that when i found out he was white it came <laughs> as a surprise <laughs> Uh, that is the darkest hour there it's four weeks in very nationalistic film and obviously it will always do very well for itself in the uk number one the greatest showman wow didn't expect that no number one considering the very mixed reviews i've heard it seems to be people either absolutely love it or absolutely loathe it there doesn't seem to be much middle ground well the, the music's been on the radio on various playlists for a long time now and stockholm syndrome sinks in eventually and you, you, you have to sing along to it i think a lot of it is revisits by people it's worked yeah. for people that so much that they will go back and we, yeah you know we've spoken about this before that we know people that have gone they in will go more, to see multiple like, screenings but, of the same film but yeah. not but not this film in particular you know we know someone who's gone to yeah. see it 10 15 times something like that yeah I was speaking to a man the other day. He's seen it 20 times. <laughs> Which I, I have never seen any film in the cinema that often. No, I probably haven't seen some of my favourite films that often. No. Because just there's, there's so much. How could you, you know, you sort of, but it's good by rewatching that, you're not seeing something else. But it's good for that person, isn't yeah, it? Come yeah, on. You clearly. Know, they're, they're, they're very much enjoying it. They're, they're getting something out of it every yeah. time, otherwise they wouldn't be going back. No. Um, and it's such a family film. Like I said, there, there is a little bit of family fair knocking around there but something about song and dance and wholesome i guess this is part of that wholesome family entertainment yeah. it doesn't have too many sharp edges on it uh possibly to its detriment yeah for, for, for someone like me yeah absolutely. at least well I, I i completely agree with you on that point i think it it does need some slight nuancing of the character and hugh jackman's character wasn't as nice and song and dancey as <laughs> as he was in Not real by life. a blooming long shot and uh for, for its essential whitewashing over the story yeah um it from a personal and moral perspective i guess I, that's where i take it slightly uneasily yeah it doesn't matter whether you get everyone singing up and dancing it just feels a bit bad in the mouth if you yeah. know what i mean five uh weeks in five weeks in six weeks in at 565 locations across the uk taking 23 million pounds we've got a song and dance version on the way from the states that's going to hit the uk in two weeks time so expect the greatest showman to stick around in the uk box office for quite a while yet okay wow yeah so that was the box office top 10 lots to reflect on uh, we're going to be taking a quick break now and uh, we'll be back with our main feature the red shoes hello everyone this is jd from the in session film podcast each week we review the latest from hollywood california well yes brendan we also give top three lists okay yeah thanks again brendan 
Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. On top of our main show, every Friday, you can also hear our extra film podcasts. Uh, you can listen to the In Session Film podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Listen to the In Session Film podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not how this works, <laughs> sir. And now, it's time for our main feature film. And the main feature film this week is Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger's The Red Shoes from 1948. Mademoiselle Page. Come in, Miss Page, come in. Sit down. I want to talk to you about your future. When we first met at Aiden you asked me a question to which I gave a stupid answer. You asked me whether I wanted to live, and I said yes. Actually, Miss Page, I want more, much more. I want to create, to make something big out of something little. To make a great dancer out of you. But first, I must ask you the same question. What do you want from life? To live? To dance. Based on the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale in part, uh, but largely an imagined story, of a aspiring ballerina, dancer, yeah. and her intertwining relationship with the composer and the owner of the ballet played by Anton Walbrook, Walbrook who is Lermontov, uh, the Lermontov Ballet. I guess a good way to start this is actually sort of outlaying the, the basic storyline to everyone. There's maybe a bit of a little bit of a spoiler on here, but I think it's kind of unavoidable to yeah. not do that to, 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 for you to be able to understand if you haven't seen this film. So the film starts with a ballet that's being performed on stage and uh, it's a new composition and uh, Mr Lermontov is there in the wings along with the composer of this latest ballet and three students appear uh, quite excitedly in the theatre to come and see this play being uh, shown for the very first time and one of the students is uh, one of the students of the the composer of this. Yeah, play. The, the composer is the is a professor, professor at a local university, and the students are students of his. And uh, also in the wings is uh, a the aspiring ba- uh, ballet dancer that we spoke about. She's watching this for the first time, I guess, trying to pick up some tips and all the rest of it. Uh, and she is uh, the cousin or the niece the niece the niece of uh, a very well-to-do woman a lady something or other a a patron of the arts there we are uh so she is well connected they're all watching this latest play and uh the one of the students notices that large parts of this composition of this new ballet have been ripped off from him Mm -hmm. Uh, and he goes well i wrote that and i recognize this bit and his professor has been squirreling bits of his own work uh, into this new composition so immediately he's on the back foot and has to leave the ballet yeah and then at the end of the ballet uh the uh, lady who's well to do the patron of the arts inv- uh, goes to the after dinner soiree and invites mr lermontov who's initially reluctant to join them to have a chat with her and uh, says you need to meet my niece. niece yeah and uh she's an aspiring dancer she's really good at what she does you need to give her a chance uh he's reluctant to do this he's once again very dismissive yeah um he's, they, he's... they do meet at this soiree and uh she explains that she, you know he, he asks her why do you want to dance and she, she uh, retorts why do you want to live 
and she needs to dance yeah. all the time. She says, I, I need to dance all the time. You know, it's a compulsion that for me to live, I need to constantly be in, embroiled in my own art form. Yeah, that I love there's that so artistic drive. And uh, so eventually lots of different things happen and uh, the composer who was spurned the student uh, eventually aligns himself with Mr Lermontov's uh, ballet company and uh, becomes an understudy uh, similarly the uh, aspiring dancer also becomes one of three understudies and eventually they rise through the ranks uh, and become leads yeah she becomes the prima ballerina he becomes the main composer then certain relationships happen a relationship blossoms between uh, the ballerina and uh, the composer unbeknownst to a lot of other people. And Mr. Lermontov gets quite angry about this and, and, and exacts his revenge. So that's a, a kind of an outline of what happens. And the, the, the ballet that they eventually all rise up to perform towards the end as they're rising through the ranks is The Red Shoes, which is a brand new composition from this cutting-edge young composer who uses Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale as the basis for this ballet now in the story of hans christian anderson's the red shoes it is a story about how a pair of red shoes uh, is given by an evil shoemaker yet yeah, to a uh, young sort of local or girl of the village um she wants to dance with her boyfriend and so she she gets the red shoes uh, they go to a carnival where she dances with her boyfriend and then swiftly begins to dance with every person there or every man there uh, as it seems the shoes themselves are driving her. They they have a mind or, or a will of their own, and it takes her from the carnival. She then enters a netherworld of a kind. The boyfriend is sort of trampled underfoot. He becomes a piece of cellophane that she dances with yeah. and is then trampled. Um, it then moves to... Uh, she is later seen in rags, still in the red shoes, still dancing, until she... Um, sees a funeral happening at yeah. a church and um she asks the priest to remove the red shoes at which point she sadly dies yes and the shoe the evil shoemaker takes the, the shoes, shoes back, back to pass on to his next victim yes so it seems like uh this these shoes are a poison to an extent uh, you know you can have everything you want in life you know you can get to to where you need to be you can do your dance uh, the dance of life i guess in, mm. in many ways but at a cost. And this seems to be like a common trait in a lot of Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales. Uh, The ballet itself slightly differs from the novel in the sense that at the end of the uh, initial story, the lady who's wearing the red shoes uh, begs a woodcutter to chop off her feet. Yeah, as as all of Hans Christian Andersen's, they they were quite violent, it's slightly um, macabre. You know, they legs. they were intended to be cautionary tales, and that was sort of sanitized slightly for for uh, the more modern audiences. Yeah, I think it's a, still a very much a great interpretation of that. So that's that's the actual ballet itself uh, an explanation of what happens in it um, which is the centerpiece of the film is a brilliant i think they, it's 15 17 minutes long where you just watch the ballet brilliantly evoked as well in in a sort of way that you wouldn't get to see otherwise um so you both are watching the ballet as an audience member yet you are also part of the ballet you are inside the prima ballerina's head seeing her um, sort of her viewpoint where um, some of the characters, so the composer and the owner, Lermontov, uh, start to appear as uh, figures within that that she is dancing with. Uh, so you're almost tapping into her subconscious. And it's, it's a 
fantastic, like you said, 15 to 17 minutes worth of the ballet in the middle of it. Very expressionistic and uh, very interpretive. Uh, brilliantly captured by cinematographer Jack Cardiff, who's worked on several of other of uh, Powell and Pressburger's work. I think Black Narcissus was the one before this, and then uh, Life and Death of Colonel Blim. Yeah. The great oeuvre of work that uh, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger had. Uh, Emmerich Pressburger did the, the screenplay side of things and, and Michael Powell did the direction of, of the um, films. But um, sort of importantly, they are both listed under both things. So it, it is directed by Powell and Pressburger. It is written by Powell and Pressburger. They had a famous, a very famous production company, The Archers. The Archers, yeah. Um, which was designed to sort of... A, a large part of the ethos of it was to keep this sort of crew together and, and to give everyone sort of almost an equal billing of a kind that we now say a Powell and Pressburger film. It's something they would have never said. There's, they were the, the Archers, Archers films. Yeah, um, yeah that's what they, they were known as. Uh, uh, Michael Powell is uh, an Englishman. Uh, Emmerich Pressburger is uh, a Jewish immigrant from Germany and uh, post-war found difficulty in, in crafting himself as uh, a storyteller. Or a... Yeah, I believe he was working in the German film industry until the rise of the Nazi party when, obviously, it was not safe to be a Jewish person in Germany. So he fled to England and there um, met Michael Powell and they started an amazing working relationship together yeah and what's interesting is as a Hungarian Jew from Germany he also went in and immersed himself in the world of the ballet and especially the ballet russe uh, the Russian yes. ballet um, so he has a quite a, a knowledge of ballet I guess yeah um, one of the touchstones of the Red Shoes is the fact that it uses performers who are actual dancers rather than actors. And uh, it's it's interesting how life imitates art, art imitates life. And that, that's a theme, obviously, throughout yeah, the, this, this film, is the, the way that the, the lead, uh, Moira Shearer, she was not an actress. No, they, they decided to go with dancers that could act, rather than actors who could dance a little bit. As I must say, it particularly with Moira Shearer, it's very noticeable. There is a there is a poise to her that I think you get from being a dancer where it's to 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 dance in in that sort of way, you have to have a mastery of your body. Mm. You have to, you know, your body is your tool essentially in the same way that a singer their voice is their tool yeah and and so she she carries herself in such a way that you just you couldn't a, an actor might be able to do a good approximation of um you know especially someone sort of that that dedicates themselves and would throw themselves into a role but did you just get something a little bit different from it well, being we, we a We speak dancer. about authenticity quite a lot, but yeah. that's wholly what it is. Uh, she brings that authenticness to the fact that her background is through dancing. So even just the way she sort of, she walks, the way she carries herself is very specific to a dancer, to a ballerina. Mm -hmm. And there are several sections in this film where they are it's almost like watching the backstage before the front stage it's yeah. really it feels quite progressive actually yeah. doesn't it and yeah. it's something that a lot of films have attempted since where you would have the backstage machinations 
of uh, a stage play, for example, yeah. going on, and then you watch uh, at the same time, time as you are seeing the sort of the performance, performance. itself. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, um, and it's it it's, it feels like almost quite a novelty, and uh, you know, for, for its time, it's uh, quite forward thinking. Yeah, and, and being able to represent those two sides of things. I also I really thought they managed to capture the sort of. Um, the camaraderie versus competition that exists between performers. So they are competitors to a degree. You know, a, a lot of the time there would be a, a, a few ballerinas who would want to be the prima ballerina. They're all going for that same position. Well, there are three in this film, aren't there? That yeah. are all, uh, no, five, sorry. And then it gets cut to three. Yeah. And then she, she eventually sort of, emerges as, yeah, the, yeah. as a prima ballerina. Um, and do you know that <laughs> this is an interesting thing while I was watching it? It reminds me of a lot of films, uh, and one thing that almost feels like deliberate now, looking back on it in hindsight, is um, Showgirls. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can see what you mean. Can actually. you see where yeah. I mean? with the sort of the mix of backstage stage. plus performance, performance on front um, stage? Uh, yeah. all the girls line up to be cut from yeah. The, yeah. from the lineup as well. I mean, didn't use the exact same line uh, as in Showgirls, which we won't repeat here, as we are unable to. to yes, um, but yeah. Can you can you see Yeah, that? no, I can I, definitely. I, it's it's a repertoire of dancers. Yes, it's that sort of the performance of what you see on stage against the sort of the real life sort of dramas and intrigues that come through a company that sort of that spends so much time together. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're right, and that that that's where the camaraderie sort of yeah. is evoked from. Um, you've got a lot of people that are surrounding Lermontov, who is the head of this uh, ballet production company. Uh, his sort of go-to men, his right-hand me- hand yeah. man, his uh, primary dancer. I believe he was also uh, a famous dancer from yeah. the Daglyshev russian ballet which is actually a real production company and and i believe lermontov is sort of based on the the owner and and sort of operator of that ballet yeah his his name i'm I'm gonna get the pronunciation wrong it's a real ballet company and it was run by a guy called diaghilev diaghilev i believe diaghilev there we are um and the the lead dancer from that uh, was uh, the, the the devil shoemaker in the actual production of the red shoes that you see on screen? Yeah, um, and partly because of um, the slightly fractious relationship between the previous lead dancer and the owner that is obviously uh, mirrored in mm-hmm. Lermontov and um, Victoria Page's relationship. Yeah, so the sorry, the dancer is uh, the lead yeah. dancer is called Victoria Page or uh, Vicky Page. Yeah, Moira Shearer's character is Victoria page yeah sorry now in terms of the red shoes why is it famous well it's obviously famous because it has uh the first sort of real incorporation of lyrical and music on on screen lyrical content on there um where you would have had dance numbers and song numbers a bit like a bollywood film i guess in, in a way uh on screen in previous films uh this sort of incorporates it in a much more organic way i yeah, guess yeah as integrates it as part of the narrative quite firmly so you're not suddenly breaking into song no, uh, halfway through a bit of prose it's they are performances that the 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 that these sort of dancers are putting on rather than part of the narrative itself. So that's one of the reasons why it's it's quite well known. It's secondly very well known because this is one of the first introductions of Technicolor and the use of colour. 
Uh, Michael, you, what do you think about the use of colour in, in the red shoes? It's possibly... I wasn't as amazed by it as, as I expected. That is very probably coming from a modern audience. I've also seen a lot of films that have been influenced by this film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I haven't seen many black and white films. Colour is the norm for me. Whereas at this point, it was not. It was something new and it mm. was something exciting and, and it was a new sort of, almost like a new medium to work within. And and so, although it is impressive, I didn't, it didn't stand out as much as I expected it to. I thought that the production design was amazing. Yeah. That stood out more for me than the use of colour. Okay. And for for me, the use of colour was vibrant. And uh, even though, you know, the passage of time and everything else, looking back, I completely appreciate that. I think that obviously the redness in, in, in the title of the red shoes, but the red of Morris Stewart's hair. Yeah. Uh, you know, And also um, Craster, who is the young composer. They they are both redheaded. Because I, I just had a thought of they would have the most beautiful redheaded children at one point. <laughs> and I couldn't help it. But it's unusual to see a, a couple in in a film where both are redheads. That that sort of struck me as slightly, slightly out of the norm. Um, uh, not that there's anything wrong with it, of course, but just it's not something you see that often. No. No, I, I, I guess I guess not, and it's probably deliberate because of that use of colour, you yeah. know, to, to to get that vibrancy out there. Interestingly, you know, uh, people with red hair quite an uh, it was a recessive gene, isn't it? Yes. Ginger hair, yeah. so so a, a dying breed uh, mm-hmm. in essence. And uh, if if you're into your smartphones and stuff, here's a little aside: they've just introduced emojis with ginger hair. Finally, oh, wow. <laughs> that wasn't a thing up no. until a few okay. days ago. So. Yeah, look out for those sometime soon. But um, yeah, going back to the film, uh, an interesting thing that uh, a couple of people hold this in high esteem. So uh, I posted the video up on the Film Seekers Facebook page. And if you want to catch things like this, follow us on Facebook, give us a like on there. You'll get these up in your feed. We don't bombard you, but we put (laughs) some interesting stuff relating to the stuff that we're talking about. Um, It was a video by a video essay by Mark Kermode, who is the chief critic of The Observer uh, newspaper and also he works on BBC Radio 5 and he was talking about the Red Shoes and its legacy and also the people that it's influenced basically and Andy Serkis was one of the people that he spoke about that it had great influence on because Andy Serkis does a lot of motion capture yeah. and his performance is very physical he took a lot of notes from Moira Shearer's performance in The Red Shoes. You talk about her poise and her yeah. movements at points in the film. It's clearly had an influence on his work. Martin Scorsese is another person who I think it's one of his favourite films ever. Yeah, I mean, he, he is a massive champion of Howell and Pressburger's work in America. He, he sort of he has lobbied to try and get distribution and, and get sort of re-releases for a lot of their films, which didn't perhaps reach quite the audience they did across the pond. Well, he his long term collaborator, Thelma Schoonmacher. Yeah, uh, she is his editor. editor. And she is also the widow of Michael Powell. Yeah. Which is quite, <laughs> quite know, a tie in there, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, one may say almost deliberately so, but he championed the restoration of this yeah. work. It played at Cannes Film Festival, went on to ITV uh, Blu-ray, which is the version that we watched. And then subsequently that same print then went on to a Criterion disc in the USA. Yeah. Now, one of the things that Scorsese said was that he saw this film every Christmas time on his television with his family. And interestingly, the television was black and white. Yeah. And so he saw the film in black and white, but he said 
He saw. The he always f- saw it in, in color because um, he'd he'd seen a screening of it, a, a sort of a cinematic screening in the color. Yet whenever he watched it on his black and white telly, he saw the colors. It was it was that evocative for him that he was able to conjure those. Is it, that's that's such an, an almost poetic sort of statement yeah. on on his behalf. You know, we watched it in black and white, but I saw it in color. And that I think that goes a, a long way to say that the the testament of the use of color, even though it didn't work for you necessarily, I think for p- audiences of its time, just the the vibrancy of being able to imagine and see those once you've seen it once, you know, yeah. those colors are not going to go away. I mean, I think it's partly possibly why it didn't impress me as much as I was expecting. In that I'd, I'd seen that video, so I sort of I was primed to to witness this this full color spectacle that it just didn't quite manage to to hit for me but again it it is very well done i you know i can't deny that um the red shoes themselves the 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 particular shoes are beautiful they they obviously they uh, remind me of um dorothy's slippers which in the wizard of, wizard of oz. oz yeah which uh, another pioneering pine- use of of technicolor, technicolor yeah uh, where that goes from black and white and you open the door and you're in oz and yeah. it goes into color and one of the other uses of color is there's some fantastic shots of we talk about vistas of landscapes when this film moves from paris then goes to monte carlo yeah it's very sort of globe hopping yeah um, as as you know a traveling company would you know these these sort of these ballet companies they tour the world yeah and they go to wonderful places and there's some great shots across monte carlo's sort of bay yeah um in the background you can see the the lights shimmering it looks beautiful it's like we spoke about travel logs last yeah. week this this looks like a travel log where you've got the the, 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 just the the background there it's just very idyllic isn't it yeah, it yeah. paints this uh, almost fairy tale sort of yeah, picture definitely and of, there's quite a lot of sort of quite baroque rococo sort of theatres that they're, they're these grand theatres that they are putting these performances on where everything's very sort of plush and velvet and, and dripping reds and sort of deep blues yeah and it just feels like almost Morishira's characters are princess in this yeah. film there's a, in fact one moment where she has to retire herself in the ball gown to go out for the night she's wearing this very dressy sort of princessy yeah, yeah. ball gown and her night is cut short and she's summoned to go and see Lermontov and Lermontov has got this private residency I think it's in Monte Carlo at the time it's atop of these stairs that look like the beginning of a castle yeah. in which she's climbing up with all these vines coming down and it's it's a very, very fairy tale. Yeah, uh, definitely. Obviously quite deliberate, but so beautiful as well to, to, to watch that. And I, I think obviously uh, M- Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger have some definite deliberance in the way that they've portrayed Morishira's yeah. character throughout the film. Um, again, if we're talking about um, specific shots, I won't say too much about it as it is a slightly later on um, within the narrative, but the shot where it traces the shoes. Mm. So you just, she's, uh, Moira is wearing the, the shoes, shoes and she is, she's sort of, she's running down some stairs yeah. and you are focused in on the shoes, shoes and you follow the shoes down the stairs, down a sort of a winding iron staircase and then out a door and this whole time you're just on the shoes. It was, it was a very powerful shot and, and scene. Yeah. And I, I think obviously the subsequent actions of what yeah. happens in that gives that more of a depth and a yeah. feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, the, the shoes are, are almost animated, aren't they? they yeah. they're, they're life of their own. Uh, As they are in, in the, the, fairy the, the fairy tale and the ballet. Yeah, and uh, 
I think we'll just run back on the ballet itself. Now, there's some sort of vibrancy going on there where life imitates art, art imitates life yeah. and all the rest of it, and where fantasy and reality divert. And yeah, then, and, and, and sort of interweave. And converge and then, and, then, and then go in all sorts of different... It must have been quite um, difficult for audiences to understand what has been going yeah. on because it's... It's it's very avant garde, wouldn't you say that? that yeah, that whole especially sequence. for the time. Yeah, and uh, even now, looking back on it, you're like, at that moment, if you don't know what's going to happen, what's going on here? Yeah, you know, where's, is this actually part of the play or? Yeah, there's uh, there's a great moment when the the shoes stand up on point on their own, and uh, Moira Shearer sort of leaps and and jumps into them, and suddenly they're on her feet. Um, that you know. It's it's achieved with a cut. It's it's not that hard a thing to understand as a modern audience, but I can imagine that being absolutely amazing. And and you know, it still had an impact on me watching it. You know now, and yeah. so I can only imagine how that would have affected an audience at the time. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's this magic realism that just is so immersive. I would say, yeah, and, and it doesn't say right. This is actually happening in real life. This isn't happening in real life. And it leaves the audience it, very much up to make make their own mind yeah, up. Yeah, blurs the lines quite deliberately as well. Constantly. It feels like an acid trip at times. Yeah. I, I was watching it with a couple of people who didn't know what they were going to watch. <laughs> uh, I had the chance to watch this on a cinema screen, which is awesome. And uh, they were like, oh, it feels like I'd, I'd smoke some, uh, you know, <laughs> something some, illicit. illicit drugs at that time. And uh, I, I just thought that would have been great uh, if I, if I had actually had done yeah. that. You know, what, what a moment to, <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. to, to rewatch. But the, the whole sequence, uh, the, you can see echoes of that sequence in modern filmmaking. I, I think a lot of it reminds me of there's a Chemical Brothers video called Let Forever Be featuring Noel Gallagher. And that whole video has a sequence that now I can see in, in hindsight yeah. is lifted from the red shoes. <laughs> it's it's its legacy is just far reaching and I, I just think that this the film is definitely the nucleus for a lot of things La La Land yeah how much of La La Land is in the red shoes yeah or, or even in um, the I believe it's uh, Rainbows of Cherbourg or, or something the Umbrellas along. of Cherbourg Umbrellas of Cherbourg yeah. which La La Land took a lot of its influence yeah. from I think itself was clearly influenced by the red shoes yeah I'm, I'm not sure what, what the date is on um, Gene Kelly's sort of stuff so singing in the rain comes to mind i believe I, that predates it um no it oh no it follows okay yeah, four years after um there's probably an element of singing in yeah, the rain no, there I'm as sure well you're right uh where you know reality and fantasy blur the lines yeah. it's not a song and dance number it's you know one minute uh gene kelly and or you know it doing their thing and then all of a sudden they move into their dance yeah yeah so yeah it's just uh that that sequence alone, I think, is worth the price of admission in the red shoes just for that twenty minutes in the middle of it. But surrounding that twenty minutes and encapsulating the whole performance is a great story. Yeah, is a great story of someone who is very committed to their art, and this is Vicky Page. Will do anything to get to where she wants to be, and not in a malicious way, but she'll work hard. Yeah. It, it, it's her lifeblood. This is something, it's, it's not just a hobby. This, mm. is, this is passion. This is something that has to be done. You know, that, that it, is, it is as essential to her as breathing or, or something like that. Yeah, and we, 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 we said, that, you know, in their first meeting in, in the beginning of the film, it's like, why do, you, why, do you, why do you want to dance? Why, why do you, you want, want to live? live? Yeah, it, it's such a perfect response to that. It is a perfect response. And uh, this 
sort of runs all the way through and it kind of once again another thing that is i i thought about while watching this film was black swan yeah by yeah. darren aronofsky yeah that that's a i hadn't made that connection but now you do it's perfect I'm isn't it kicking myself that i hadn't seen that it's so clearly yeah influenced by it yeah this the the tale of a ballerina who has that drive to to be the best to to sort of to inhabit that role and and to you know and especially where it's it's very understandable where a discipline like that you have to work for years Mm -hmm. to get to that point you know it's not just there are no natural ballet dancers it is all you know you can have natural poise or grace or something like that but it is years of hard work to get you to that point and you think about Natalie Portman's uh, portrayal of her character in The Black Swan. There's also a large sequence where you actually get the song and dance number yeah. and then it goes all magic realistic yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, um, I, I, yeah. It's just, it occurred to me while I was watching it and yeah, I was like, that's brilliant. clearly a, a huge chunk of The Black Swan from Influenced the, by the Red, Red Shoes. Shoes. Yeah, you're entirely right. If not, feels like a, a modern remake. Yeah. You know, you could mistake it for yeah, that, yeah. couldn't you? Where, where you take the uh relationship between the composer and the um the ballerina and yeah. juxtapose it with uh, a more progressive uh, relationship where you know uh, Natalie Portman's character has transgressions into bisexuality i yeah. think and, and and all the rest of it yeah it, it's it's the there is a more overt burgeoning sexuality about her character where obviously a film like this was affected by the times it was made in and so, you know, it's even the, when they're married, they're sleeping in separate beds. <laughs> I just thought that was quite adorable. Um, you know, the, it, it's quite restrained because of the morals of the time, time you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yet you can see those clear parallels in the, there is a similar possessiveness to Lermontov and his sort of, his desire for her, which is not necessarily sexual, no. Or romantic, well, this, um, this is but the... is almost artistic. Yeah, he, he loves the art so much, he'll do anything to get... Well, leave a legacy, almost, it feels yeah. like. It feels like an egotistical uh, thing for Lermontov. He, he, his ballet, it, it means so much to him, and those people who play within his ballet, he will do anything to get the best performance out of them, and especially when he looks at Vicky Page's character, he can see her potential, and yeah. that's why he's risen her up through the ranks this is his prima donna this is this is the star of his show and this will make or break uh what people will remember Lermontov by and it's it's and he'll do anything at any cost to to retain that ego although i do think there is perhaps a slight undertone of some form of of attraction or just in the his reaction when he finds out that they are a couple, couple. it it seems so this is, like this a is, quite um, and, and Vicky, Pe- Vicky Page, Page. Are the, the composer and the prima donna ballet, uh, ballerina, uh, eventually become married. Yeah, uh, they, they were having a relationship unbeknownst to everyone else and kept it on the very QT. Um, and then when Lermontov finds out about it, this is almost a besmirchment on the fact that this might tear his ballet apart. He doesn't want people having intermingling relationships yeah, at but all. Like I say, I did also just get a slight sort of 
sense that there was maybe some element of uh, of uh, romantic or sexual attraction yeah, there so did I. for him and they also hint at uh, previous the 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 last prima ballerina who early on in the film leaves to to marry someone the, the, there is echoes of the relationship between Lermontov and Vicky Page in their relationship as well yeah. so that you, you you maybe get the idea that this is something that has happened before that while he is creating this star as as we all sort of fall for stars to a degree, yep. he 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 does as well. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. We always speak about uh, Harvey Weinstein and and the things we talked about at the top of the hour, where Tarantino yeah. is controlling his players yeah, to yeah. such a degree to protect his own interests and perhaps even then taking a romantic interest in those people. Um, not necessarily, I'm saying that Tarantino, no. or Uma Thurman is, but the, this, this, there are echoes of, of yeah, reality definitely. definitely running through that. Lermontov's character is played by Anton Walbrook, Walbrook yeah. who was a, a gay Jewish man, of, yes. all, of all things. Again, another another um, emigre from Nazi Germany, Germany. Who, who had to flee. Um, uh, because of his homosexuality. As well as his um, sort uh, of religion, religion ethnicity, yeah. um, and so yeah, it, it it he he is brilliant in this film, I have to say. Um there's a there's a sort of a very reserved sort of nature to him. He's he's very again, poise comes into it. He the way he holds himself, the way yeah. he carries himself is very deliberate and um fastidious. Yes. He's he's very standoffish. He doesn't there's a there's a scene where someone's uh, a very principal player in his ballet is having their birthday party. Yeah. He hasn't been invited. He only turns up because he's looking for uh, Vicky Page's character. Yeah, you almost get the sense it's an accident that he sort of he just happened to be picking this restaurant where the party is taking place. Exactly. It's very clear that he does not take part in any of the private lives or has very good relationships with anyone at yeah. all in this film. He he's a, he has the professional relationships with them, but you yeah you get no sense no of a personal, personal relationship. No personal relationship. Well, Lermontov is a man on his own island, and he likes it that way by yeah. all accounts. Um, yeah. So the romantic side of things, I they Powell and Pressburger said that they deliberately chose Anton to play Lermontov because he was a gay man yeah. and he could bring this sort of neutrality or to to the role but i i am with you i felt like there was a undertone that he had some sort of jealousy over the um, the relationship but yeah i i think at least in terms of that with the the homosexuality at least at the time it would have created you know you you couldn't be as free in your sexuality and so he has that reserve that that possibly comes from his sexuality in part that, you know, he, he had to be very careful about what he revealed about himself to people about how much he sort of let himself be himself. Yeah. And you you couldn't get away with those sort of things, could you? You So, you know, played into his character completely. Um, interestingly enough, the actual run of the film, wasn't received particularly well at no, all. As a lot of great sort of films, it, it, it often happens. They don't quite reach the audience that they have later on in life at the time of their release. So the reason that it didn't do very well, it was released by the Rank organisation uh, in the UK, very long-standing, famous uh, yeah. distributors. They considered the 20-minute fancy reality sequence to be too much for audiences yeah, and yeah. hence the reason why it didn't work for them. Powell and Pressburger stood back and said, 
no, we're keeping this in this film because this is essential to yeah. the film. I can't imagine if they'd excised No, it. you couldn't have the red shoes without the red shoes. No. And, <laughs> and, and uh, the rank organisation said it seemed uh, sheer indulgence. So um, there we go. How wrong they were. It's Like I say, a lot of these films, they are ahead of their time. And, and so that's why they're not connecting as much with the audience of the time. No, absolutely. The, the film had gone over budget as well, which is another yeah. warning sign of all great films. Is we talk about Blade Runner, uh, the yeah. initial Blade Runner, over budget, no one getting on, disaster at the box office yeah, yeah. and all the rest of it. And then, you know, with time, seemed to be it one of the... It gets held up yeah, as a classic. Touchstones of uh, science science fiction and noir. And the only... Uh, it was it was just released into, I think, a small amount of cinemas in the UK... And the only reason it achieved such international acclaim was because it ran for two years unbroken in one single cinema yeah. in New York. And then subsequently, you know, other uh, releases across the world, uh, you know, the word of mouth got yeah. around and uh, it, it, it popularised it. And uh, it, it had some awards success as well. It did which, have some awards success. obviously well, help to reach an audience that it might not otherwise. Well, the, the awards it did get was uh, Best Original Score, Best Art Direction uh, at the 21st Academy Awards. Mm. And uh, it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay and Best Film Editing. So... Those aren't small awards. No, 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 no way. Uh, you know, no stretch of the imagination. They they are sm- small um, awards to to garner, but um, clearly the rank organisation didn't really think much of it. They were much more concerned with the commerciality of yeah. such a big film with a big budget. Now the budget may not seem much to us nowadays, but it was a budget of uh, five hundred thousand dollars at the time. I don't think that's. Uh, taken into account inflation obviously no no obviously like that 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 gets you a small indie these days but that was a massive budget back at those times it was a huge amount of money to to spend on a film that was deemed to be commercially unviable Uh, 133 minutes probably about an average time for around the time period as well but um quite a punt for the rank organization to take take on that yeah They, they only got to make this film which had been drafted uh, since the early 30s and uh, they only got to make it because of the success of the life and death of colonel blimp and the matter of life and death yeah. and uh, black narcissist being such hits before they were able to release this now as i said they drafted this in the 30s before uh, world war Two. yeah and there's an interesting quote here from i think it's michael emmerich uh, i think it's michael powell michael powell emmerich michael emmerich <laughs> michael powell and he talks about uh the sort of ethos of what he was told uh, uh, so it was for, for years um ev- young men had been told to to go out and die for the causes of freedom and, and justice democra- and democracy, democracy yeah. and here was a film that was telling you to go and die for the sake of art which is a brilliant it's such a great quote it is a, an amazing quote and it, this film literally does that doesn't it yeah it, and it really feeds into the themes as well of of art as this all-consuming passion like there's a great line in the film um that lermontov himself says uh where he's talking about why the art should be more prevalent and he he, he refers to the doubtful comfort of human love which i just thought was a great phrase again uh, where he sees art as something eternal something worthy of of and something that is innately comforting mm-hmm. um, and, and and obviously then that also shows his detachment from human relationships yeah. and how 
he distances himself very much so from the reality that he's in. He likes to live in this sort of artful fancy world, would yeah, you not say? Definitely. To him? Yeah. Um, um, there's just so much to read in this film on several levels and I, I I'm not I, I'm not in touch with any people that are still studying film at school, but I think there's so much to gain from this and if you were to, oh, to study it at school you can just read it on so many different levels it's um it's it's very allegorical at parts the the sort of the story of the young girl in the the red shoes obviously ties in with the story of Moira Shearer's character mm-hmm. there's the parallels between the real life ballet Rousseau's and then the the Lermontov ballet that is sort of in the film it it's just yeah it, it works on so many different levels it's a, a, did you enjoy it by the way like in terms of i mean you know i know you had to watch it because i said you had to watch it mike <laughs> and we're doing it the was homework it, but i thoroughly enjoyed this bit of homework i have to say it has made me very eager to go and watch more of powell and pressburger's films I, I think I think the, the the thing that the red shoes can do is open up a doorway, perhaps. Like if you haven't, like you said, watched a lot of black and white films or films of that era. Yeah, I think it's a really accessible film. Still, the language is not so much that you wouldn't understand what's no. going on. The conventions are. I think a little bit challenging in the way that perhaps even challenging for that audience, but even challenging nowadays. We yeah. talked about the backstage, front stage sort of stuff going on, but you can still get a grip of what's going on. It's it's not a real tough watch at all um but what you do get from it is a, a doorway into film of old and uh, certainly the powell and press uh, pressburger sort of oeuvre is is very much seen through the red shoes and then i would say also black narcissist as well yeah. and life and death colonel blimp this is such a good in to, to to get into it. i i mean i've i saw the black red shoes when i was studying at university in 2000 and because it was a university and I was being forced to do it and I was half awake at nine o'clock in the morning on a Monday <laughs> and as a student, not really in tune with these sort of things. But just looking back on it now, what an appreciation of sitting back, not having to do homework per se on it. Yeah. But just looking at how it works in terms of uh, the history of film yeah. and, and, and the legacy we've talked about, how much legacy it's left and the the intermittent themes that that run throughout the great performances from all concerned in yeah. there you know not you're not trying to compare them to modern day actors and the way they deliver lines obviously things... no it, it's very different styles um there was a far less naturalistic approach to acting back then there's a, a wonderful clipped manner to the speech that everyone has it it's not a little bit of, of received pronunciation but yeah definitely yeah. there's there were just a few moments when someone would say would someone would say something and it's <laughs> just good. there's just this great, great sort Ant- of manner Newley. yeah there's this great <laughs> manner to the speech um i really liked um it assumes the audience's intelligence it's got quite oh, a yeah. brisk pace about yeah. it but it trusts you to keep up with it yeah, it, has it to. doesn't sort of spoon feed you and everything I, I really enjoyed that. I thought having the real performers, the real dancers, real musicians who you see in the orchestra pit oh, yeah, and things course, like yeah. that, it, it does again, it lends this real air of authenticity to it that you just can't get otherwise, I think. Are you a fan of ballet? No, I am not. But it, it's a that's what I love about films like this, like Black Swan. They interest me in a medium that I am not interested in. They okay. hold my attention fully when I, I think I've maybe mentioned it before on the podcast. For me, technically impressive ballet, 
but it's an awful way to tell a story because <laughs> you have to have this foreknowledge or you, you know, you have to have a program that, yeah, tells, that tells you, you what's going on yeah. as, as sort of, you know, working in a cinema, you could, there you... are the live performances and each ballet, it has a detailed synopsis of what is happening because for me, I can't tell that this plie means I'm happy, but yet this plie means I'm sad. You know, to me, they look identical. And so you either have to have that that knowledge of, of you have to be a keen fan of the art form or you have to have it explained to you. So, yeah, it's, it's not an efficient way for, for me to tell a story, yet... I had no trouble following the story of the red shoes within the red shoes. If you follow I, I, my drift, I, I get I get what you mean. Uh, I, I I watched Tosca this week uh, from the Royal Opera House uh, being performed. I have no idea what was going on. No, and, uh, and that's not to you know. Obviously, the work that these these performers put mm, in is intense. so impressive yeah. and incredible, but it just doesn't connect with me no. in a way. But yet, this film did one hundred percent. It fully. I was I was drawn into this world entirely. I was too, and uh, even though the ballet sequence is, is fairly extended um, in the scheme of things, it's it's pretty short and uh, it's very self-explanatory what's going on. Yeah. Especially because the red shoes, as a fairy tale, is explained in the yeah. You the, get a brief synopsis when um, Lermontov is talking to Crastus about, about the initial idea and how he wants him to score it. He he sort of walks him through the story, and it already sets you up actually for what you're going to see on stage. Yeah, so again, it's it's that sort of layering of what's happening with what will happen with the sort of the parallels between real life or the real life of the film rather and the the narrative of the ballet it's one of the best films of its era for me um i think we're probably going to have to round this one up now mike so um ratings and we'll do we'll do some ratings out of five as per usual again i know i often go to this but i think it's it's a four star possibly more on a second watch i i i just are you keen to do a second watch on this i am quite keen i'd want to give it a bit of time okay let it let it sort of settle and let it sit even just having this conversation has made me realize some of the things that i had subconsciously picked up on right but had, hadn't put into words yet Okay. Um, and and so for that reason, I, I really am looking forward to another watch. But perhaps after I've caught up with more of the oeuvre, yeah, I think sure. would be would be quite good. Sure, I, I I I watched it two weeks ago. Just talking about it now makes me actually really want to go back and, <laughs> and watch it. Just because I enjoyed all of the performances throughout. Moira Shearer's. I don't know. I, I I didn't look up what she went on to next. She didn't do many other films. She did do a few, and there was one that was quite a big release and i can't remember but yet she she didn't do that much um, uh, and peeping tom peeping there you go tom. um obviously it's it's again not not something i've seen but i i am aware of for its filmic history and she also hooked up with powell and pressburger again in tales of hoffman uh, in 1951 a few years later quite a few faces appear in that again so she obviously made an impact as an actress i think as first i don't know if that was her first time it was um she was a minor player at uh, like a stratford ballet company so she she wasn't even you know with one of the the bigger more national ballet companies when they found her and this was her her sort of film debut um she is an it's an amazing performance she's absolutely beautiful she is a beautiful i I know it's something that you know we shouldn't press on too much but of course it it lends itself to the performance it's that also that sort of feeds into the idea of 
ballerinas as these sort of you know it's it's what little girls wanted to be when they grew up when I was younger that that was sort of one of these ideals of sort of female beauty was was ballerinas yeah Uh, because of the poise because of the grace because of the sort of the figure as well yeah I think um, although for for, for me I I personally am not a fan of that skinnier lady right okay um but but, but ju- that's just personal preference, yeah, of course. obviously. Yeah, we all have different uh, yeah. preferences. But in ter- in terms of the um yeah, the look of Moira Shearer, the red hair obviously, we spoke about, you know, how that was a bit of an anomaly. Big eyes as well that just sort of stare out of the screen at you. Some of the makeup choices as well for us. Brilliant. Well. Yeah, the the later on when she's got the, the big, red yeah, yeah. the sort of um when she's uh, being forced to to choose between one life or another like just the the look of her is is startling yet quite amazing and uh we've we've kind of skipped and plied around the central sort of premise of what happens towards the the end of this film i think we're going to leave that open-ended for you to kind of discover for yourself so the red shoes i'm sure is knocking around in lots and lots of places certainly on itv dvd and blu-ray in the uk it's on criterion in the usa for me i'm going to have to give it a four and a half out of five just because i super enjoyed it much more than i thought i would (laughs) i i was i was going into it quite anxious that i would have the same feelings or can't be bothered with it like i was when i was a student time and maturity and (laughs) lots of other things i'm not particularly smart i just found it so grabbable because like the the touchstones we've talked about we've talked about showgirls we've talked about black swan i've talked about the chemical brothers video and i can just see how much this film has had you know as the nucleus a lasting sort of effect, influence yeah, yeah huge la la land you know anything that's pretty much been out there it's probably come from the red shoes and the the, the idea of life imitating art and how much you would do for your art uh, i only saw last week in phantom thread yeah where daniel day lewis plays a dressmaker and he has a sort of muse that he meets and he is so committed to his art that he dismisses any sort of real life relationships. It depends on, you know, how far will you go to leave a legacy and yeah. keep your ego intact. And it's once again, it's just one of those inherent themes that runs out. And once again, great score in, in uh, Phantom Fred that we heard earlier in the box office top 10. And a great score in this film as well. Brilliant score. As you would expect, it feels like a full-blown, proper ballet production. Yeah, with an actual orchestra, which there actually was, you know, really playing these things for real. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing. The Red Shoes, uh, hope you can go out there and find it sometime soon. Uh, we'll be back after this final message. Hi everyone, this is Tim Costa. I'm Hermano De Silva. And this is Walter Vinci. And together we are the First Time Watchers Podcast. Each week we choose a movie to review that none of us has seen. Watch it together. And then discuss. These movies could be new. Or old. Or on our list of shame. You can find us on iTunes by searching for the First Time Watchers Podcast. As well as on Stitcher. And we love interacting with our listeners, so if you have any suggestions, send us a tweet. An email. Or post to our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. That's right. I mean, it's all about interaction. And talking about what we love. Movies. And you don't have to worry about us going on and on about this and that and the other. And, oh, no, look, no, no, let's no. talk stop, about stop, this stop, minutiae shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. And shut up. I wonder shut who up. the cat God damn it, Three gentlemen there. That is the First Time Watchers podcast. Hermano, Tim, and Wally. 
make up the Holy Trinity there. Uh, they did the 300th episode uh, not too long ago, so congratulations to them. Yeah, well done. Well done. We're nearly making our 10th, so... <laughs> Got a little while to go. <laughs> a little while to catch up. And they had Mark Herney from uh, Criterion Cast on to talk about Stanley Kubrick's uh, Space Odyssey. It's 2001. Yeah. Uh, which is an excellent film. You can catch those guys the first time watchers. They're out there on iTunes and all the usual places. Now, competition, we mentioned this on the last podcast, but in case you didn't hear, we've got a competition that's running for the next few weeks. You've still got time to get your entries in. We have two copies of the brand new film from Joachim Trier called Thelma. I managed to catch it at last year's London Film Festival. It comes out on DVD and home release on the 26th of February and it stars Ely Harbo in the lead role. It's a supernatural tale of a girl who goes off to study at a large university and then suddenly she comes back home and mysterious things happen uh, I'm probably not painting a great picture of it there. Uh, it is not your standard shock horror. It's more of a coming-of-age film, and it's actually quite abstract in some of its ways. Yeah, no paranormal activity here. Definitely. Oh, well, there is paranormal activity, but this is not paranormal activity. No, I, th- I think probably the, the sort of thing you would maybe align it with is possibly the tone of Let the Right One In, a bit more sort of... Thoughtful, thoughtful and, yeah. and sort of deliberate. Yeah, yeah a bit yeah, less... A bit more meditative. Yeah. Yeah, so and that... That is Thelma from Yoakam Tree. You can win it, one of our two copies, thanks to Thunderbird releasing, by sending us an email, quite simply, hello at filmseekers.com and just put competition Thelma in the title. Or you can tweet us at filmseekers on Twitter. Once again, just say competition Thelma and uh, retweet the competition as well. That'd be great. Hmm. And the closing date is the 25th of February at midnight and it's only open to UK people because I don't want to pay international postage. <laughs> um, but yeah, a great, Limited budget. Very much so. A great way to get the film for free and minimum effort on your part. Yeah. Win-win all round. Now, onto our home streaming to round up today's episode of The Red Shoes. And uh, Mike, we've got uh, Netflix, Amazon Prime and iPlayer. So over to you for your Netflix recommendation. Yeah, so my Netflix recommendation is a film that I actually mentioned earlier. And that is Okja by director Bong Joon-ho. Is the tale of a young girl who raises a new breed of super animal that is um, involved in a competition to see who can raise the healthiest or the largest animal. And these animals are specifically bred for human consumption. And it is to sort of deal with... Um, you know, sort of over farming, things Globalization. like Globalization. Exactly. Yeah. Um, an amazing cast, an amazing film. Um, it, I, apparently it made quite a lot of people want to go vegetarian. And it, vegan. Uh, or vegan even. Um, it yeah. didn't do that for me as I am a committed carnivore. Yeah, horrible um, person. But it, it at the very least made me feel guilty the next time I ate meat <laughs> and, and made me think about where my meat comes from. I think um, that that's something at least. D- that, that is quite a high benchmark for someone like me who is such a carnivore. So yeah, it, it does it very well and I cannot thoroughly recommend it enough. Also, Paul Dano is just the man in this film. He was made to be an anime character, wasn't he? Yeah, exactly. And I I mean, I love him in anything, but he just drips cool in this. Uh, And Jake Gyllenhaal drips flop sweat. And he does it so well. Like those two characters are some of my favourite characters from film of last year. Crazy Terry Nutkins type of person. <laughs> yes. He really is. He's one of these sort of animal show sort of... Ex- Bill Oddie yeah. or, yeah, someone like that. 
He's uh, an eccentric uh, for the most part until De Swinton also turns up in, in this one as well. As twins, as, as yeah, she's as, playing, uh, yeah. Again, it's uh, I have a slight theory that Tilda Swinton might actually be a pair of twins, <laughs> and there's just a number of directors who are getting us ready for the reveal. Mm. Um, I mean, it would explain the uber talent. You can't have that much talent if you're one person. No, that's... Two people combined. Now that makes sense. <laughs> that's Mike's theory on Okja. Mike's crackpot theory. Yeah. <laughs> For Netflix UK. Um, also on Netflix UK, and I'm slightly breaking away from trend here, uh, just because I didn't think there wasn't much new stuff on Netflix UK warranting of recommendation. But my recommendation is a TV series that's on Netflix UK, and it's also on Amazon Prime, the first series you can catch on there as well. But the two series uh, of Inside Number 9 are on uh, Netflix UK, and you can watch those to your heart's content after binge-watching Black Mirror. Hmm. It's one of these series that cleverly plays with film conventions and always has some sort of dark twist into it. It's not as slick as Black Mirror. It doesn't have the same production values. It's the BBC production. Not to say that the BBC don't have money. They do. But it's pared down, and it's only 25 minutes an episode and they're all self-contained stories, and they all circle around the number nine, as you'd expect from the title. From Steve Pemberton and Shearsmith, who did uh, The League of uh, Gentlemen, which yeah. I didn't really like, actually, as a TV series, but I really like Inside Number Nine. There's some really uh, heart-wrenching episodes, and they really get to the core of, I don't know, what it is to be human sometimes. Uh, there is certainly the the last episode, I think, in season two is well worth watching, and that's on Netflix UK now amazon prime mike uh yes yeah, so my uh recommendation for amazon prime is um a bit less worthy if i'm honest um though it is a film that i think is unfairly judged and that is the island uh directed by michael bay starring ewan mcgregor and scarlett johansson uh from 2005 and is the story of a sterile world where every move is monitored uh the two main characters uh discover something slightly off in their world and and all is not as it seems think things like soylent green or or other sort of sci-fi classics stranger in a strange land things like that where the idyllic setting we are sort of shown is has a lot of cracks under the surface um it's a great action film the the two leads are 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 amazing in it 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 i think deserves more recognition than it's got yeah i think a lot of people poo poo uh the island because michael bay directed it but actually i think he's done a pretty decent film there i i enjoyed the film at the time when i saw it it's been a long time it has been quite a while since i've seen it so Um, it is one that's worth worth revisiting for me maybe re-evaluating possibly but i i am more of a sort of i have a slightly more mature filmic taste now but i i still i remember very much enjoying it okay so the island there for yeah Mike. maybe a some impairment required film oh, I, but... love, I love that that's your that's your caveat <laughs> my, yeah yeah your get out clause is uh some impairment yeah required. I'm, I'm sticking with it <laughs> okay uh my amazon prime uk recommendation remember these may not be available internationally but uh, certainly are if you are uh, live on these islands amaros peros uh the uh, alejandro gonzalez in 
film from 2001, I want to say. And it, this had uh, a cast that's sort of largely unknown, but it does have Gail Garcia Bernal. Who is it. always watchable. Very watchable. If you've seen uh, the young Mozart, I think it is. on uh, um, Mozart in the Jungle. Mozart or in the Jungle. Itu Mama Tambien. Oh, so yeah. many other things. Yeah, um, The Science of Sleep. Yeah, he's, he's great in everything I've seen him in. Yeah, so this story follows uh, intertwining sort of tale of three different things going on at once and they don't really make sense until they sort of tie up at the end i guess it was very popular around sort of late 95 going through to yeah 2003 you Definitely. know where you had multiple strands yeah and they shortcuts nashville things like crash that. yeah pulp fiction yeah yeah and they, they all sort of had these disparate tales and you're like well what's going on here what's going on there 21 grams i think as well similar yes yeah very similar so you know it's something that i think hollywood's grown out of certainly commercial films grown out of sadly because i think think they made interesting films when they're done well yeah i mean there was one example in there that everyone loves that i think is is crash is awful i love crash crash is awful it's- not the one about people that crash and have no, no, in, no. that that's an entertaining film. <laughs> no, crash the the Oscar winner is dreadful. I, lo- I like it. That is the the mountain I will die on. Okay, quite gladly. But back anyway. Sorry, yeah, no, I distracted you, you. You didn't derail me at all. So, um, if you want to watch Amorous Peros, uh, the uh, story is uh, beginning with a, a car accident. The film interweaves its stories from its victims. So Octavio, a young man who is in love with his violent brother's wife Valeria, and a Mexican model for whom physical looks are everything and El Chivo a former political assassin and then they basically just kind of move in it's all circles around a, a dog fight and uh, there's, a, there's some cock fighting in there obviously not real simulated no animals were harmed uh, that's my uh, recommendation for Amazon Prime uh, for the BBC iPlayer uh, Mike, you have? Uh, I have Calvary, uh, directed by John Michael McDonough. Uh, obviously, his brother, Martin McDonough, has uh, three billboards in awards contention and in cinemas at the moment. I, I think I prefer John Michael McDonough's films. But Interesting. Calvary stars Brendan Gleeson, Chris O'Dowd, Aidan Gillen. Kelly Riley. Kelly Riley. Basically, most talented actors working in Britain at the moment. And is the story of a priest who um, hears a man's confession and the man confesses that he is going to kill said priest because of a molestation that happened not at this priest's hands, but at another clergyman's yeah. hands. And um, as, 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 as the bastion of the church, he is being held responsible. He, yeah, as, as a figurehead, um, he is sort of being held responsible and he is told that he will be killed within a few days. And so he sort of tries to figure out who this is, but also it's just a sort of brilliant meditation on sort of faith, life, the the deep and meaningful questions that sort of plague us all. Yeah, uh, um, and Brendan Gleeson is absolutely outstanding. He in is. It. He is. It's a little bit slapsticky in places, but this is a, a fingerprint of John Michael McDonough's work. Uh, if yeah. you look at things like The, the Guard, Guard, is another one that which is a very unlikely film. Is I mean, obviously, John Michael McDonough has a passion for his homeland yeah. of Ireland, and you've got Don Cheadle. <laughs> and Brendan Gleeson yeah. playing in, a buddy, in an buddy, Irish western, I, playing a buddy cop film. Essentially, yeah, a, a buddy it? cop in an Irish western. Yeah, entirely. They <laughs> they have that sort of fractious, slightly sort of jovial relationship. It it very much has a the the one sort of the one member of law in in a town sort of feel that that, that evokes westerns for me. 
Uh, and so, yeah, it, I, I absolutely love John Michael McDonough's films. I can't wait to see what he does next. No, neither can with I. With Brendan Gleeson, I'm sure. I'm sure he, <laughs> he will be in tow and it'll probably be set in Ireland as yeah, well. Yeah, and I am fully on board for that. My BBC iPlayer recommendation, and most of these, Calvary, I think, is available for a, a few more days, if not a couple more weeks. Hypernormalization by Adam Curtis is also on there. That's available for much, much longer. So whenever you listen to it, it's probably going to be on there. Now, Adam Curtis is a documentary maker and hypernormalization is uh, quite a long film, but it will also, I think, open your eyes to what's going on in the world around you and why certain things are happening and what the narrative that the media tells you. And it sounds a bit like something that InfoWars would push out and it's it's almost like perhaps a little bit propaganda-y, but I think it's anti-propaganda in the way that it depends on your political standpoint on this. I'm liberal, you're liberal, yeah. Mike. Uh, but I think conservatives might have something to say about it, but the, he presents them as facts and he explains, you know, why the world bank, banking crisis, but he does it in an interesting way, in an entertaining way and evaluates and evidences his thoughts up against things like, for example, Andrei Tarkovsky's stalker hmm. is brought into it to, okay, to wow. evidence why the Russians were pulling out of their relationship with America. It's, it's a fascinating watch. It really is. Uh, if you, it, His narration isn't as bad as, say, Mark Cousins's and the story of uh, film and other films as well that Mark Cousins has done. as a doc- He's a great documentarian, by the way, Mark Cousins. No disrespect if you're listening, Mark. Your voice is a bit boring. And get someone else to do it. Uh, Controversial. No, his content is great, but Adam Curtis uh, not doesn't have the most interesting voice, but very tolerable and just hypernormalization. I mean, you can watch it in a few chunks. It's just not boring at all. In fact, you don't realize how much of the world around you is being manipulated so there's some interesting pre-trump stuff in here did you know that donald trump bought up loads of new york's derelict buildings um and bought them under the price of valuation knowing full well that the state would have to sell it to him because they were strapped for cash yeah it's fascinating it really is and this all happened in the late 70s 80s okay it's fascinating loads of stuff that made me feel completely thick (laughs) but explained in a very plain and simple manners yeah and like i said evidenced with stuff that you can get your head around okay so hypernormalization is something you, you, i highly recommend you watch on the bbc iplayer or wherever you if you're around the world see if you can find it somewhere i'm not sure whether you, you will be able to it's certainly not on dvd or any sort of home release it's almost slightly depressing as well <laughs> the fact that we live in a very manipulated as, society as all truth kind of is to a degree it, it it illuminates at the same time as it depresses yeah um well there we go so we've got to the end of the show mike uh it's taken a while to get here but we are <laughs> as always certainly here and our next show will be about tampopo yeah and uh, it's got a couple of uh well certainly one name on there that we know yeah ken watanabe ken watanabe uh, directed by Juzo Itami and it centres around a truck driver who stops at a family run noodle shop and decides to help its fledgling business and it's also intertwined with lots of mafioso that uh, visit this noodle shop it is a Criterion Blu-ray and DVD so we may have a special guest on if I can bend their arm to give us a, a nice <laughs> introduction like Web did for yeah, which Chalet. is great he did a great job of getting, giving us uh, the insight that he has into Bollywood films and I might be able to get someone who has a bit of an insight maybe into Japanese film or the Criterion Collection as a whole. So Always looking for others to make us sound more intelligent <laughs> than we are. <laughs> Absolutely. 
and uh, as as being a criterion film it obviously has to meet a certain criteria to be put to included print into yeah. the collection so uh, i've never seen it before i was given it by my girlfriend for christmas uh, i also have never seen it we but have, have uh, i'm obviously aware of and we haven't spoken about any sort of japanese cinema so this once again we're trying to do little things so the red shoes was us looking back at classic 1940s films and uh, british 1940s films at like that we've looked at bollywood we have looked at mexican film in terms of santa sangre we've looked at commercial american films so Mother and Detroit were our first two episodes. Mother commercial, there's a debate there, but I understand the point. American films. Yeah, and modern. We're, we're trying to edge ourselves out a little bit further, not only to just to push ourselves, but maybe encourage you to try something outside of the biggest seller at the latest multiplex or on DVD. I mean, at this point, it's kind of just working as me catching up on some of the films I feel like I should, should have, have watched, watched by now. <laughs> and so, you know, use it to do the same for yourself. Yeah, why not? And you could get in contact with us in the usual manners. Hello at filmseekers.com. Tweet us at filmseekers. You can join us on Instagram. That's uh, filmseekers. All one word, by the way, filmseekers. For some reason, I decided to make it one word. Why not? <laughs> filmseekers. Just one word. And uh, All you... the best things are mononyms. Of course they are. And you can listen to our back catalogue on iTunes. We've got eight other episodes behind us. All of which are pretty good, in oh. my humble opinion. Yeah. I'm, I'm obviously biased, sure. but... We've listened to them numerous... I've listened to them numerous times. You've mm-hmm. listened to them quite a few times on your iPod. And uh, they, they're quite good ways to get access to films and maybe give you a little bit of an in without spoiling them. Yeah. Uh, that's the other thing that we do quite well, is not, we don't try and go and spoil us because we want you to go and find those films and, and maybe experience them for yourselves. But if you do see anything, let us know. Send us a tweet. Send us an email. And uh, we'll read you out. Obviously, take part in our competition if you're up for that as well. Yeah, and any recommendations for films you think we should we should review or, or, or watch for the podcast would also be more than welcome. Our next podcast will be on the film uh, Tampopo from 1985, but we'll also be doing a smaller one beforehand, just before the Oscars. And that will be on the weekend of the Oscars, where me and Mike will be clumsily ticking and giving our expert opinion on what films we'll get the main Oscar in all the main categories talking about the films that we have seen if a bit of a shorter episode because you can go back to the best of 2017 (laughs) and listen to what we thought about some of the main ones there but we'll be playing some clips and certainly dissecting the nominees seeing who's more deserving than others of each nomination maybe even talking about the ones that didn't quite make the grade uh, for example we heard the post score earlier why is that not nominated John Williams score it sounds Mm -hmm. great but anyway, that'll be our um, smaller episode before our next main one, which will be Tampopo. So it leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us today. You can follow Mike. I am at the late great MR on Twitter or Mike Ross on Facebook at the late great MR on Instagram. Follow Mike. Just, just, follow, just Mike. follow me. You know, <laughs> come hang outside my house and just peek through my window. I don't mind. And um, you may follow me in one way, and that is at Film Seekers on the Twitter social media thing that people seem to use nowadays <laughs> you sound so old i am old <laughs> on the twitter thank you very much for joining us today and we hope that you join us soon thank you goodbye bye-bye this episode has ended but your film journey doesn't have to head over to filmseekers.com where you'll find more reviews ideas and news we're also on twitter and facebook why not connect with us and let us be part of your film seeking adventure 